money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. And so let's see what Sandra's up to this morning. How are you today? Good morning. I love your show. Well, I always listen to it on the way to work, which is a really sad story. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry you have to get up and go to work so early on Saturday morning, but I sure appreciate you making me a part of it. Well, I have one quick question. I am looking for a magnolia tree. I had a friend who lost several family members recently, and I always give plants. I ask, what would you like? Uh, and they said a magnolia tree. Uh, they have about five acres, and uh, I'm not sure where's the best place to get one this time of year. Well, Whether where and and where is this going to be planted? It's going to be planted in uh, Lockhart. Okay, so you've got nice deep soil over there. Yes. <laughs> there, there are places magnolias just won't do well, like Stone Oak, San Antonio, but right. uh, in Lockhart should do fine. The question comes down to, um, you know, how how big a tree do you want? A uh, full-size magnolia tree can get up to be quite quite a large tree, and I don't really consider magnolias a shade tree, because you really don't want to trim the lower limbs off a of magnolia. Magnolia needs to, I mean, it's got those limbs practically down on the ground, and that serves a purpose. That shades the ground, that keeps the tree's root system cooler. Well, I, and yes, and I have one, and I, I do never trim it. My limbs are about two feet off the ground, but it's beautiful. <laughs> well, and I want it for the beauty. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm he- thinking, would I cost me between what 100, around a hundred bucks? Could I get a decent tree? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, what you're you're probably going to look at paying. I tell you what, let me tell you about the two types of magnolias, and then I'll tell you okay. about the sizes. Uh, your standard magnolia grandiflora is the big tree. It is probably what you have, and it's going to make a tree that's going to ultimately probably wind up forty, fifty feet tall and twenty or thirty mm-hmm. feet wide. And like I say, they are a beautiful tree, but it's not something you can put the picnic table under. The other choice uh, is a type of magnolia, which is called Little Jim, G-E-M. And it is uh, has the same beautiful white flowers, has the same evergreen growth habit, has the same dark, glossy leaves. It has a smaller leaf, and it is a slower-growing tree. I'm not going to call it a dwarf, but it never takes on the monstrous size that a standard magnolia does. So uh, your choices are either standard magnolia or little gem. Both of them are outstanding. The only difference really is in the stature, the size of the tree. Now, most nurseries... If they don't have them, they certainly have access to them. In San Antonio, we grow more of the little gems than we do the standard magnolias simply because they don't have ex- as extensive a root system, so they don't uh, they, they do better with our lack of soil here, so to speak. But you're probably, for a five-gallon-sized tree, which is going to be three to five feet tall when you get it, you're probably looking at $40, $45. Uh, if you want to get a bigger tree in a 15 gallon container it's probably going to run you somewhere in the neighborhood of 125 dollars so and that's that's fine i i really think that the the larger tree 
uh, I think they just want a reminder. Sure. Uh, yes. A memorial treat. Yes. I think, how wonderful is that? And as I grew up, my father always planted each of my siblings. We each had our own uh, fruit <laughs> A good idea. Yeah, so thank you. I love your show. Always good information. And uh, thanks again. Well, you're welcome. certainly welcome. Sandra, one other one other thing I will tell you is to find your standard magnolias, you're probably going to go east because you're going to find most of the nurseries and growers in the hill country are going to keep little gem in stock. If you start heading over toward Houston, you're going to find that most of the nurseries over there will keep the bigger trees in stock. So do call before you set out and make you know much of a road trip because uh, uh, it's going to be more difficult to locate your standard Magnolia Grandiflora um, in San Marcos, New Braunfels, San Antonio, Austin. But you get over more toward Houston, you're going to find it's a very common tree. So don't just jump in the car and run out to buy one. And uh, um, I, if you work out fine, the family actually, the main family lives in Houston, so I can actually order it and they can pick it up there. Yeah, there's a good nursery. Uh, there are two or three good nurseries. There are lots of nurseries in Houston. But you might check out Buchanan's. Um, okay. They are one of the reputable nurseries that uh, I'm pretty familiar with over there. I think there is still um, a nursery called Condon, C-O-N-D-O-N-S, Tony Condon, uh, has always had a nursery. They recently moved because uh, next-door neighbors bought their property and uh, but uh, check out Buchanan, check out Condon's, and like I said, there's tr- plenty of others. But I know those will be two good places to start your search. Thank you so so much, Sandra. Bye. It is a pleasure. We will talk again. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, okay, it's going to be Marcy, Jim, and Kay in that order. Good morning, Marcy. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I hope your Thanksgiving was good. as wonderful as mine. It was. Awesome. We had 18 people over here, and it was, it was a lot of fun. So That's good. We had um, three, and it was up. a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably didn't have as much to clean up as I did. Hey, you're, that's exactly the <laughs> truth. Uh, how can I help today? Um, so I had a really easy question, but I did want to add to, I live in Richmond, uh-huh. and we have two really good nurseries. I'm, I've been to Buchanan's, and it's really nice, too. It's I've shopped there, but it's really far from me. But in Richmond, we have Enchanted Forest okay. and Enchanted Gardens, and oh, they're okay. they're family owned. And if you ever come this way, you should you should definitely go there. Um, if I if I go to San Antonio, I'm going to go to your place because I've never <laughs> been there. Oh, you would enjoy but, it. Okay, Enchanted yeah. Forest. I'm writing as we go here. Enchanted Forest and Enchanted Gardens. Yes, and it's owned by the same families. Um, one side of the family runs what they're they're probably like 15 miles apart uh-huh but i i live in between both of them so i i can go to to either one depending on where i am that day <laughs> or both but they have they have um it's like going to a like a arbor uh, like a park well. or arboretum it has um you know uh ponds and it has fairy gardens and it's just awesome sounds so. like a place we need to go and it's we're, we're yeah. sort of the same way i think you would enjoy seeing our place people compare us to the botanical garden regularly i always yeah. tell them the difference is that the botanical garden you pay to get in it shades of green you pay to get out but it's as simple as that <laughs> but it's also a fun place to look around so well i'm very glad to know about enchanted forest and enchanted gardens when i get over that way i will definitely make a make a point to check them out 
Okay, well, I do have a question, too. Yes, ma'am. So we live in a development, it's a, like a master plan community, and they we, we all have to have um, Bermuda grass. Like, that's a rule. You can only have Bermuda grass. So, <laughs> so I was noticing... Um, a lot of the areas, the common areas, and even some yards, they have like that squiggly pattern mm-hmm. on them um, right now. And it's weird because my yard, which is right on the, I have a fence, and like right on the other side of that fence has the squiggly lines, and mine doesn't. And I'm just wondering, is that from chemicals? Because I don't put chemicals on my yard. I suspect it is. Now, tell me exactly what you mean by squiggly lines it's like it's uneven in its growth and maybe uneven in its color no yeah it's un it's uneven in its color so it's some of it's green i mean not not real nice uh-huh. green but some of it's green and some of it's has it has like this pattern almost like yeah, it, yeah. just okay. squiggly uh, circles and and i'm just since it's right on the other side of mine and it's in some people's yards and and not and i was i was going to call because I've noticed it, and people have asked me, do you know what that is? And I'm going to call Bob Webster. <laughs> well, I suspect it's chemicals, because they put a lot of chemicals around. And it certainly could be. And people who who use the, you know, the synthetic fertilizers and all the weed killers and everything else, they've basically changed their yards to a hydroponic growing situation, and it's just mm-hmm. hard to maintain even nutrients, and you will wind up with you with what you're describing very uneven growth very unhealthy growth unhealthy growth tends to make for more problems which means they're going to dump more chemicals on it trying to mm-hmm. solve those problems and uh, just be thankful that you do it differently i do have to tell you that occasionally we see something like that where you know the subsoil when you go down six inches um, all of a sudden, some areas you've got domes of caliche up very close to the surface. Other areas you've got rock very close to the surface, and you mm. wind up with more of a pattern. But where you are, you've got mm. much deeper soil. I doubt very much, um, unless you know this, unless your subdivision was built on top of a landfill, which is not unheard of. But I, I suspect that the problem is more what's being put on the top rather than what's coming up okay. from the bottom. And um, if people are interested in getting their yards back to a good, healthy state, you know, first of all, quit using the bad stuff and start out with compost, start out with organic fertilizers. And think about Bermuda grass. My, my big objection to Bermuda grass is it won't grow well in the shade. And so you're pretty much limited uh, as to where you can use it. But it's by far the toughest, hardiest uh, grass out there. If it gets dry and you stop watering, it'll turn brown, but it'll come right back when you start watering again. So, uh, and especially like the little low ones, the, uh, tiff type Bermudas, which, uh, mm-hmm. don't require a lot of mowing. So I have no objection to Bermuda grass, but, um, the nice thing about like it, if it. for your neighbors, when they get away from this, um, synthetic program, uh, you can get your, you can restore your yard to good health, uh, you know, very quickly, and it's mm-hmm. it's not just Good. that it looks bad. It's not just that uh, you know you're you're spending a lot of money on things you don't need. But it's very unhealthy for people and for pets. My good friend Doctor yeah. Kirby, that I have the pleasure of doing a radio show with tomorrow, uh, you know, he sees obviously a lot of disease, a lot of uh, 
uh, terminal cancers and things like that in dogs especially. And he says first thing he asks people is, do you use weed killers on your yard? And he said the answer always seems to be yes. So it's not I just know, that I it, can't believe that uh, people I'd, do that. I love my four-legged friends uh, more than I love a lot of people out in this world. So uh, <laughs> <I agree. laughs> just keep on doing it right. And if any of your okay. neighbors have the good sense to question why your yard looks so good, tell them to start with compost, tell them to start with organic fertilizers, and the change will be quick and very, very noticeable. Very good. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate your information as well, Marcy, and uh, you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk again. Okay. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. thanks. Bye. All right, next up is Jim. Good morning, Jim. Morning, sir. Good morning. Um, I have a quick question. I have a number of plants that got wiped out of the 21 degree freeze we got a couple weeks ago. Okay. Uh, some porter weed. If I cut the tops off and cover that with mulch real good, will those come back, or do I just need to replace them in the spring? In uh, most cases, porter weed. Do you have the blue one or the kind of reddish one? I got one of each. Purple, okay. blue, red. Okay. It almost, is, you know, invariably they will be perennial. Now, unfortunately, the weather kind of did the same thing to us this year as it did last year. And that is we got that relatively sudden freeze, but things had had some time to harden off a bit. So uh, don't just totally bury your plants with compost but or mulch, but uh, uh, I would go ahead and cut them back. There's absolutely no reason to maintain that frozen top. And I give you at least a 90% chance that they will come back out strongly next spring. Um, just, you know, don't keep them too soggy wet water occasionally over the winter months. But remember that without the leaves on them, they're not going to be using as much water and the biggest threat I would see to having them come back next spring is if they stay too wet over the winter months. And uh, um, we can't can't affect what Mother Nature is going to do. But keep them moist but on the dry side, and I don't think you'll have any problem. They should be right back next spring. Pretty much the same thing with my turkey cap. Oh, Turk's cap, I'm not worried about it at all. Turk's cap. <laughs> do, you have the, do you have three colors there as well? There's also a red, a pink, and a yeah. white there. But uh, yeah, all I've got a red and a pink. Yeah, all of them. Uh, they are very, very hardy. And once again, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't smother them. I wouldn't keep them uh, just soggy wet. But they should be. Uh, no question at all. They should be back next spring. Well, I give that. I'll send you a few bucks at the SFA plant sale next spring. <laughs> <laughs> you can plant some new things instead of worrying about replacing your old ones. How's that? Yes, sir. I work fine. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Jim. And let's see here. Next up is going to be Kay and then Suzanne. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I have several questions. Uh, one, I took in some of my pasture into my yard. Okay. And it has a lot of grass burrs. And I know what you say about using compost. Right. Well, over the last week, I've collected a lot of a lot of black bags of leaves, like uh-huh. from the neighborhood, and right. spread those out. And I was going to ask you, uh, the city chips or grinds tree limbs at the park, uh-huh. and they they have big piles of it, and then a truck comes and hauls it off. Um, can a person use this, or is this too unfinished to serve as compost? Well, it, it's too unfinished to serve as compost. It is an excellent mulch, and it would be a great thing to put in your flower beds, around your trees and shrubs. It would be a great thing, but it's not. It would it it's a mess to try to mow over 
And um, it's, yeah, it's not something I would spread on the grass. And I don't think it would really have that pre-emergent, that suppressive effect on the grass burrs. You need some of the humic acids. You need some of the things that develop as organic material breaks down so um i you know and i those those chippings are absolutely wonderful as a mulch and they'll be even better if you buy a few bags of compost and mix with them that's just one of the best things you could ever do for your trees your shrubs you could use it as walkways in a vegetable garden but on your grass i want to see a much more fine textured material and uh, shredding up your leaves and everything is a great way to build soil. But once again, it's not going to have that pre-emergent effect that you're looking for in this grass burr area. It's it's great in the rest of the yard, but where you've got these grass burrs, whether you do the rest of your yard or not, actually get some good finished compost to put over there. Okay. Um, I'll do that. Uh, the man that leases my pasture, uh, he also raises chickens uh-huh. and he has some big piles of chicken manure and he said that he would bring me uh, a load and spread it out in, in that area is that okay or do i need to oh, absolutely. buy bags of fertilizer? no absolutely uh, i would still add a little bit of compost to it now you want this sure. poultry manure to be a little bit aged you don't want it fresh out of the chicken so to speak because poultry litter is very Oh, the term they use is hot. It's just so high in nitrogen and other things. It can cause such a water uptake that uh, it will, you know, it, it can burn some things. Now, I'm much less concerned about that on your grass than I would be, say, on cyclamen or pansies or things you might have planted in the flower beds. But uh, you have a very generous neighbor, and I, I would bake him a pie or something in return for that generosity. He so, my pasture, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's like... Uh, but this area that I took in, it's it's way, way back. It's not like even almost in the yard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still yeah. so far away from the house. Oh, that would be a perfect place for that poultry litter. It uh, doesn't have grass. It just has some pasture, sure. you know, whatever, yeah. mostly grass burrs right now. But, okay. And he said it was piled up, so I guess it's kind of aged a little bit. It's probably going to uh, be a, sort of a, a blend, some of it fresh, some of it aged. But uh, out in that area, I can't think of anything better to do. I would not go barefoot in that area for a little no. while, <laughs> especially with with a combination of grass burrs and uh, poultry manure. No, <laughs> we're not going to do that. But it'd be a great way to bring uh, the quality of the soil back up and get some nutrition in there. So. Uh, tell them to bring it on. What's probably going to happen is you're going to go from having pasture land to having the nicest part of your yard. And at that point, you're going to want them to start spreading a little bit of the material on your regular lawn grass. But no, start out back in that area. And um, I see no problems whatsoever with that. Right. That sounds good. Um, years and years ago, I planted uh several acorns like in in gallon buckets Uh and um i set a couple of them out in the pasture actually it's the area that i've taken into the yard um i had to had to pack like a can of water out there so they didn't get watered one died one didn't die Mm -hmm. uh the trunk on it is about 50 inches around already (laughs) but the other seven are still in the bucket okay (laughs) And they don't look so good. Um, they're like a little mott. Uh-huh. And 
I was wondering if I could maybe keep four of them. Uh, they're about 15 or 20 inches around mm-hmm. and get rid of the three that are about two to four inches. That's strictly and, your choice. Uh, maybe now, girdle them or something? Well, the, you know, I suspect the reason that some of them are more stunted than others may be that they have girdling roots. They may have started out with roots going round and round and round, and, you know, it's kind of like a noose around your neck, Mm -hmm. that noose around the trunk. Um, I would either, you know, cut that, I would cut the the containers, the pots away from them, and if you want to save those other trees, I, I would do this with all your trees, because many trees grow very well, and then all of a sudden they get up to a certain size, and they start getting choked, so I would be looking at all of those trees, the four of them that are beautiful, as well as, uh, or however many there are, as well as the ones that aren't. I would very definitely be peeling those buckets away. I would be cutting any girdling roots before they can really cause significant harm to the trees. And if you want to remove some of the trees altogether, you know, that's fine too. It's just uh, Mother Nature plants things pretty close together, and then it's just sort of a battle of the strongest survive. But I'd, I'd be taking a look at all of them because I don't want, you know, three years from now to you suddenly be having problems with these trees because the girdling roots finally caught up with the expanding trunk. Okay, and... And they're in these still little gallon buckets, and so some of the root, I mean, it looks like it's just mushrooming over the top. I mean, it looks pretty sad. <laughs> right. Well, um, you may even want to pay a few dollars to get a good arborist to take a look at them and tell them what the best thing to do. But uh, that is that is a very common problem, but long-term it can create some it can create uh, a lot of problems for those trees. Uh, you know, it, it's just every tree is going to be individual. And um, uh, in those gallon cans, the nice thing is if you peel the pots off of them, they're only going to be six or eight inches out of the ground, which is probably a good thing. But uh, it's, you know, it's because you may just, you know, want to mound up a little bit of soil around them or I'm sure they're pretty well established to where they can just, you know, spread out and grow. But I I think about, you know, Howard Garrett had a tree in his yard that without realizing exactly what was going on, it had girdled itself and it was continuing to grow. But that point, you know, right on top of those circling roots was so, and this was a pretty fair-sized tree, but it was so constricted that a little bit higher than average wind gust came through, and that tree snapped off and was down on the ground because, once again, imagine this nice big trunk, but it was squeezed so much that right at ground level, it was very much weaker and smaller than the part above it. So I, I just, I want you, I, hopefully most of those trees will be good to go with very minimal help from you, but uh, in in some ways... The trees that haven't grown as large, you know, probably have less problem because the roots haven't gotten as big. The trunk hasn't gotten as big. So um, I, I would very definitely be checking this out. I mean, it's a good idea that maybe <laughs> maybe should have been paid a little bit more attention to a few years ago, shall we say, because I, yeah, I am I very, yeah, I am <laughs> concerned. behind the barn, this mott, and yeah. uh, anyway... Uh, if nothing else, uh, you know, peel those pots away and take some pictures and 
take to a good nursery or a good arborist and let them take a look and say, hey, everything's fine here, or um, you have a real problem, and you know this root and this root probably should be removed. Those things can actually build up so much pressure from the developing trunk that you have to be very careful in cutting those girdling roots because it's kind of like a rubber band that's stretched real tight. It looks harmless until you cut it, and then all of a sudden it pops out and can do some damage, and uh, that's actually a concern with girdling roots. So um, if you decide to attempt to remove any of them yourself, just do it very, very carefully. Okay. And if they do look okay, is it a problem that, like, the farthest away one is is a yard from the other, the rest of them are, like, it's, a couple of feet or one feet? They're so close. Well, know? that's but, that's not a problem, except that, okay. you know, the trees, all their growth is going to be toward the area where they get the sun. So uh, if you were to remove all except one tree, it's going to be a lopsided tree. But where you have several lopsided trees growing together, uh, it makes a beautiful, uh, it's what we call a mott of trees, right. and mm-hmm. it does not hurt them to be in very close proximity. But as you can imagine, uh, individually, those trees don't have the best shape in the world because right. they're just they're growing out into wherever they can find the most light. But no, that's not a problem to the tree. And when you go out and take a walk in natural areas, you see that Mother Nature does that a lot. I know, yeah. Okay. I have one more question. Is that okay? Or Certainly. No? Go right ahead. Um, the, the squirrels um, planted a couple of oaks in my yard, yard part. Mm-hmm. And I, I should have taken them out long ago, but I was thinking, well, this tree around it might die, or this one, and I didn't. So now they're about 20, one's about 20 inches, and one's about 24 inches around. <laughs> <laughs> and they're in the wrong place. They have to go. And I was just going to have them cut and ground down. Yeah. My handyman said that he has the equipment to take them out, and he would wrap them, the trunk, in burlap and plant them out in the pasture. And I didn't know if that was feasible or if I should just have them cut off and plant some new little ones out in the pasture. Well, I would consider, first of all, whether you need those trees out in the pasture, and I would find out how much he's going to charge you for this service because uh, you can move trees that are that size, but if they're 20 inches in uh, circumference and they're, you know, 6, 7 inches in diameter, actually about 6 inch and a half inches in diameter, and the root ball that would have to be on that tree to transplant it successfully is probably going to weigh 1,000 or 1,500 pounds. So we're talking about a major excavation in your yard, which is going to you have to bring a lot of soil back in to fill in that hole. And he's going to be using a backhoe or, you know, I don't think a bobcat will handle, pick up and move that much um, weight that is spread out over that much ground. It's going to take, uh, you're talking a major project and you're going to leave a substantial crater if he is able to transplant them successfully, and a professional tree digger would probably charge you fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars a tree to do that, and if you don't really well, need these, it's three thousand. <laughs> yeah, if if you don't need these trees out in the pasture, um, my old uh, horticulture teacher, I guess sophomore year of college, um, you know, he he told me one time he said a weed is a plant in the wrong place. 
He said that pecan tree may be a beautiful tree, but if you want a swimming pool right there, it suddenly became a weed. So if these trees have to go, it's going to be a lot less money to turn them into firewood and then bring a stump grinder in and grind those stumps down. And it's just, uh, I mean, your backyard's going to look like a war zone if they do take them out and transplant them. And if those trees will serve a valuable purpose, it's worth a lot of money to you to transplant them out, then you can do that. Here's the other thing that I will tell you from personal experience. Years ago, uh, back in the days when I dug holes and planted plants in a landscaping business, um, had a customer that wanted a bunch of trees. I planted, I don't know, seven or ten five-gallon-sized oak trees for him. He wanted one big tree that I couldn't supply. He paid somebody, I think, $1,500 for a beautiful bald and burlap tree. But when you dig and move those trees, they leave so much of the root system behind that it takes them many times, several years, to really resume growing because they have to reestablish their root system first. And seven years uh, down the road, my five-gallon trees that were $25 a piece at the time tells you how long ago that was but uh, those trees were bigger than his fifteen hundred dollar tree because they took off and grew from day one so I, i'm just not sure there's economic value here now if those two trees were acorns planted by your grandkids yeah i can see why you want to save them and take care of them but i it just sounds to me like somebody's asking you to invest a lot of money in something you don't need if they were mine, if they did, in, did indeed have to go, I'd cut them down, grind the stumps, and put it behind me. Well, that's what I'd plan to do, so I think that's just what I'll do. <laughs> well, but those are my reasoning behind I. As you as you know, to my detriment or not, I'm not a yes and no guy. I tell you why I will try to give you the answers, and maybe I've maybe I've uh, droned on a little too long, but uh, that's those are the reasons behind I would take the steps I'm encouraging you to do. Great. Okay, it sounds good. Thank you so much for your information and your time to explain it all. It's always a pleasure, Kate. Well, Have a wonderful so weekend, and we'll talk again. Okay. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. All right, uh, over Seguinway. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Oh, it's just a nice day out there. I'm in uh, T-shirts, and I should have worn shorts today. I'm really wishing I had, and any time I can do that the day before December rolls around, it's a pretty good day in my book. Uh, yeah, ditto. I got up this morning and put my jeans on, <clears throat> but before I go outside, it'll be, I will have shorts on. It's a sauna out there. Oh, man. Not not the best day in the world for deer hunters, but for those of us that plan to work outside, it's going to be pretty darn comfortable. Right. See, I've got a question about some coral honeysuckle plants. Okay. These guys are monsters. They mm-hmm. were planted along a fence. They are approximately, the mat, plant mass is approximately 12 foot high by 20 feet wide. There are three plants in there. Okay. In that super cold weather quick that we had, that unfortunate event last winter, the north side of all of the all three bushes got really burnt, and mm-hmm. so they lost a lot of leaves. But then, when the when they greened up in the spring, there was one plant on the end that looked a whole lot worse than the worst. Okay. The rest. Over time, over over summer, that plant has continued to decline, uh-huh. while the other two are robust. Um, we may have had a water issue, but 
have, after having read that this is a native plant and mm-hmm. once it's established, it should be okay. I really can't attribute all of this damage to to water. Well, um, you know, the the one thing I would say about that is that, uh, uh, and I'm not going to get political here and use analogies I shouldn't use, but if you allow a plant to become dependent on you, native or not, it may not be nearly as hardy. And uh, I always use the example on my property of uh, some pecan trees. That uh, I've got pecan trees in a field that, oh gosh, those things must be 30, 40 inches in diameter, enormous trees, and they don't even know when there's a drought. They don't drop a leaf. You would never know there's a drought on. But the ones overgrowing by the creek that never had to develop that widespread root system because the creek provided all their needs for water and everything else, um, when we had the 2011 drought, which is the worst one-year drought we've ever had, I had pecans fold up and die down along the creek because the creek went dry, and where that sometimes happens, I mean, it's dry now, but, you know, two or three months later, it always has water in it again. But we went for two years without any water in that creek, and those wonderful, hardy native plants that you're talking about folded up and died because they had gotten, in effect, soft. They didn't have to put out a very big root system because all their needs were met for them right there in that one spot. So the fact that coral honeysuckle is a native plant doesn't mean that you can't turn it into something that's dependent on you for its existence. And so I'm not at all surprised that, uh, you know, one, if it were getting less water than the other, you know, would have a problem like that. I love coral honeysuckle. It's not the, it's beautiful when it's in bloom, but it's always kind of a, a little bit of a straggly plant, as I'm sure you well know, and um, it does not sound like disease. I'm not uh, aware of any disease that these things get. I think it's almost certainly a physical condition of some sort. But if those other tree, those other two plants are just growing like gangbusters, um, I, I I'm not going to worry too much about this one that is languishing. Once they get severely stressed, this is kind of common, and sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. But I'm pretty sure we don't have a disease issue or anything going on here. The only reason that I would hate to see it die out is because it's going to leave a lot of sort of unsightly dead foliage back among the beautiful foliage that's on your other plants so it may be a bit of a mess to try to clean it out but uh, it doesn't sound to me like it's a problem that's likely to affect your other two and I quite frankly wouldn't worry too much about it okay well that was my attitude for the last year yeah now I'm looking at oh the other thing that happened was last summer our, our native morning glory Got a got a head start because mm-hmm. the bush head didn't have much foliage on it, and he eventually overran that entire plant. Uh-huh. And those the those leaves blocked the sun from getting to the branches of the honeysuckle. So sure. I had that going on. Well, and but, you can do um, your best you can to rip that to, out. I think when it, yeah that stuff you know it did died in the first freeze, <laughs> and then I've got I got a I have to marine crawl underneath the bush to try and yank out the roots on the morning glory, which is another saga in itself. <laughs> I think that I need to, um, I think I need to cut that plant back. Oh yeah. Um, and I'm going to wait. My thinking is I will wait until mid February when stuff is starting to come out yeah. of uh, dormancy and do it then. 
That's what I would do. My question do. is, yeah. my question is, I know that I can take 30% off the height of the plant without too much trauma. Can I go more than that? Well, here's the thing. It's height has nothing to do with it. You don't you want to try to remove no more than 30% either of the leaf bearing part of the plant or the part that would have leaves on it because uh, size is really immaterial, but the reason we limit how much we prune these things is because that's how a plant gets rid of moisture. It's taken up through the plant, transpired out through the leaves. And if you take away all the leaves of a plant that normally has leaves, now deciduous plants that normally drop them are a little bit different story. But um, it's not the size. It's not whether we take you know two feet away from a five-foot plant. It's how much of that leafy surface area we take away. So... Um, you can cut it back as little or as much as you want, but frequently we do that by kind of thinning and selectively try to leave the parts of the plants that have the most leaves. So um, if you're just looking to reduce the size, you are probably better to do it in two steps, which would mean if the plant's now eight feet tall and you want it to be four feet tall, you go through and you cut out a third to half of the tall branches, limbs, vines that are coming out. You wait for them to sprout and begin putting on new foliage, and then you go and cut back all the other ones that you left tall. So it really has nothing to do with how many feet you do or don't take off. It's how much of the top of the plant, how much of the foliage you take away at one time. Okay, my misunderstanding. So um, this is a plant. These I look at this little hedge every day because it's right off of my back patio. Mm-hmm. The uh, I want the plants because I love the hummingbirds, love the bloom. <laughs> right. And all over that coral honeysuckle mm-hmm. when, when it's in bloom, which is most of the year. Right. So my thinking is I probably ought to prune all three of them since it's a hedge. Um, otherwise, it's just going to look even worse than it does now. Well, again, you're doing it for your benefit, not for the plant's benefit. The plant doesn't care whether you prune it or not, and you're always going to reduce the flowering for at least two or three months when you first prune it back because a lot of coral honeysuckles flowers will come on the wood that you're going to remove. So I would do it sparingly. And remember, this is not to benefit the plant. This is just to make it look a little bit neater, perhaps to reduce its size. But you're doing this pruning to please Suzanne, not to uh, not to please the plant. So just trim as much or as little as you think you need to. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely got to be pruned. It is getting to the point. It's actually at the point where it's an eyesore right now. And so you and I both know that you really should have done this two years ago. But yeah, you know, prune it now, but but keep up with it a little bit better in the future, so we don't get to this point again. Yeah, you know, I I moved from a landscape there where there was a lot of shrubbery put in that had to be pruned, Uh and that's why I love this landscape so much. I look at those honeysuckle bushes and I go. They can just grow until Hades freezes over, and I don't care. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was going to have this happen when you have <laughs> one go out of, out of three. Well, it's a different matter. Life, life teaches you lessons no matter how young or old you are, and fortunately you're smart enough to pay attention. So you get out and have a right. wonderful weekend, and uh, call anytime I can help. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Suzanne. Bye. Well, I push that button right there and say good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? It's just, uh, it's a warm, humid morning out there, but, you know, I, I'll take warm over cold at just about any point. How about you? 
Oh, this nice weather's killing me, man. <laughs> Too much work, huh? You got that right. Uh, all the uh, everything that piled up during that flaming hot summer we had is coming to haunt me, man. <laughs> and you're saying I really should have been out there taking care of this instead of doing what I was doing at the time. And uh, now, now, like you say, it's coming to haunt you a little bit. But hey, it's uh, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, we even got some rain. Uh, I don't know how much you guys got. We got about, oh, not quite a half an inch. Yeah, you got about twice what I did. I had .21 overnight, so, uh, um, you know, not complaining, but I sure wish you'd been 1.21. Yeah, really. Um, I called to ask you about the wacky wabbits. I need uh, to get control (laughs) on some rabbits, man. I was wondering what you had to say about that. How big an area? What uh, what are they going after? Oh, they're just uh, doing the edges of the cover crops and in some of the beds, the Elbon rye. You know, it's I, the nice thing about rabbits is they don't don't climb very well. A low, you know, I mean, eighteen inches of chicken wire pinned to the ground firmly will probably keep them out. I have never found, I know some people sell some stuff they call rabbit repellent, but uh, I, you could always check out one of the coyote urine problem uh, products or something like that because it may deter them to some extent. But uh, as, as the old thing says, those pesky wabbits, you know, they'll they'll sure nibble on a lot of stuff. And I, I guess if you wanted to, you could probably trap them just... Uh, you know, get a little bag of uh, alfalfa feed of rabbit chow, basically, and uh, you can trap them and relocate them. Um, but I I just, you know, I, I keep a net-type fencing around the garden, and uh, I must say that I, I've never, I, I'll sometimes discover a place where a rabbit is dug in, but uh, they, they've, for me, have been pretty easy to exclude. Now, a really big area that becomes a little bit more problematic, but um, they're you know they're very catchable, and they they would sooner eat that alfalfa chow than they would just nibble at what's out there. So you can trap them and relocate them if you want, or you can have rabbit stew, whatever works, <laughs> whatever works have best for you. In a, a wire trap. Yeah, yeah, and they're not like an armadillo; they're not going to tear your trap up. They're pretty innocuous as far as uh getting in there and letting you relocate them okay that's where we'll start and there's nothing we can spray on the crops again the only thing that i've ever seen work are things like the mountain lion dung or the you know coyote uh you know sounds disgusting but uh uh, there are two or three products out there (laughs) I don't want to know how they collect it or where they get it, but coyote urine and things like that um, are pretty effective. But, you know, you've got a lot of area out there, and uh, um, you would end up spending a bunch of money. There's no inexpensive, simple-to-use spray, and this kind of weather is kind of weather that will wash it off, and you'll be repeating it every few days to try to keep them away. And the old story about how quickly rabbits reproduce is not a story. It's a, a fact. So I'd take action pretty soon while you've only got one or two to deal with or, you know, 
be kind of like me and my black rock squirrels this past year. Those blasted things. By the time I finally got around to trapping, I ended up catching like 20 of them to get them out of mine. They got more of my summer garden than I did, so I get after the rabbits right away. Okay. I'm I'm trapping the squirrels, and I'm leaving the trap at the same location. Uh, I haven't moved that squirrel trap forever. Yeah. And what I'm letting them do, I'm letting them spend the night in the trap so they're uh, – They'll scent the trap and the area, and uh, man, I I'm catching almost a, uh, a squirrel a week. <laughs> Tells you how many of them there are out there, and uh, they, you know, uh, they can be just very destructive in many different ways. It's not just what they eat; it's what they chew up and all the other problems uh, they cause out there. So that's. You know, it's uh, old days. Uh, our fathers and grandfathers—they just shot everything that moved if it wasn't uh, domestic or something there to their liking. And it's, uh, it's not quite as acceptable in today's society. But you got to do something with them because they will eat you out of house and home. Well, I found that even that that trap in the same location and letting them spend, you know, overnight in that mm-hmm. trap, uh, sends it up pretty good. Uh, <laughs> having good luck with that uh, i'll put out some traps for the rabbits there's nothing like peppermint or spearmint or anything we can spray on the foliage that would uh would deter them then it depends on how hungry they are you know any of the herbal sprays i think uh rosemary or thyme or you know one of your stronger sprays would probably be more effective but uh um, they're pretty good at finding their way around it, and unless you're going to spray the entire garden, which, once again, just the, the day you quit spraying, they're going to come back in and start eating again. They're, they're very, very patient, so uh, I think you're going to have a, you know, it's kind of like all those chores that have been piling up. You don't want to, want to let the rabbit population pile up until you say, hey, i got to do something about this, and then you're dealing with 30 of them instead of two of them. Yeah, the the winter grass around here, you could almost bale it. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's looking real good, but they're just picking on the, the cover crop for some reason. Well, it's it's called nutrition. That winter grass is kind of, uh, kind of like Bermuda grass. It's pretty empty nutrition. Your legum, leguminous cover crops, they've got a lot of protein. They've got a lot of good stuff in them. And uh, it's like old Malcolm used to always talk about how the the cows, the neighbor's cows, wanted to come eat on his place rather than staying at home and eating because they knew where the more nutritious forage was. And uh, for all of their other qualities, rabbits aren't dumb. They're gonna they're gonna eat the thing that they get the most out of. Yeah, they're picking on me. Um, <laughs> I got Johnny's new catalog the other day, and man, is it nice! They've got a new tool in there. I wanted to tell you about. It's, what is that? Uh, it's called a wire weeder. It's, uh-huh. uh, it looks like a, a stirrupo, but it's like uh, oh, 0.125 gauge wire. Uh-huh. And it's for attacking the, the weeds in the uh, what they call the thread stage. Okay. The very, very, very small tender stage. Yeah, when you can just see them popping, just a little green dot. Well, I built one just to see if I wanted to, to buy one of the professional models, and and it really works. Mm-hmm. 
um, you can you can get pretty net, pretty close to the uh, plants with it, uh-huh. and there's sharp edges for the drip tape or the mulches or anything. It's it's a pretty neat deal. Sounds so I like it. To tell you about it. Well, it sounds sounds like a great way to take care of things, but only when they're very young. I I don't know about your weeds, but you know my different things some of them can become awfully tough awfully awfully quickly so you got to get out and get them while they're young but it makes sense i don't know any reason that wouldn't work real well and probably at a much lower cost and if you have to replace that wire that shouldn't be a big deal oh yeah um you know for for people that that garden that do what you're supposed to do uh it's (laughs) it's a good tool but if you let your weeds get you know uh, uh quarter half inch stems on them you might want to uh yeah i'm not going to give away my syrup oh yeah <laughs> well james you get out and have a wonderful uh weekend hope thanksgiving was good for you and your family oh yeah everything was just wonderful and uh i'm glad you're uh i'm glad your program's still going strong i, I really appreciate your help well, it's always a pleasure visiting with you and always a chance to learn something for you. So you go run some rabbits off, and we'll talk again. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. Bye. Those lines are full now, so we're going to talk to Jason and Joe and Faye and Don, and Jason's up first. Good morning, Jason. Hey, Bob. Um, i got a couple of questions about uh, plants and vinegar. So Okay. Start out with the plants. Hey, I've I've got trouble with rosemary. I can't grow that stuff for nothing. I don't know what the it's whether the soil content or something, but whenever I plant it, it, it's good for a couple of weeks and then they're dead. How often are you watering? Uh, About every second day. You may need to be watering every day to get it established. Rosemary is one of those plants that when you first plant it, it takes a lot of attention to get it going once it's in an established i mean it's a mediterranean climate plant and it's pretty tough and hardy but it is um i if if you're having problems show up that quickly uh it's almost certainly a water issue and if you told me you're watering twice a day i'd tell you probably watering too much but be sure that when you water you're soaking it very thoroughly and um, down where you are, where your soil drains a little bit better, I think you just need to give them a little more moisture, get them started. Uh, I mean, that's two weeks' time is not enough for really any other problems to start showing up. And um, salt's not usually an issue for them. I, I think it's just all all water, Jason. And I think if you'll if you'll once again be certain that you really flood them, there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. So really flood them, and unless we have a lot of cloudy, drizzly weather, you probably need to be watering every day to get them started. After they have really gotten their roots down and well-established, then you can back off to where, you know, you're only watering them every week or 10 days. But I think it's a water issue, and I think you can correct that very easily. Um, is, is potting soil versus just putting them in the ground any make a difference? Um, chances are they'll do better in the ground than they will in potting soil. Um, I mean, it wouldn't hurt to work a little, yeah, it wouldn't hurt to work a little compost or something in, but as long as that soil drains well, I'd just be putting them in the ground. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Okay. To the vinegar, uh, I know you and Howard Garrett both, uh, 
put out a bunch about vinegar and stuff like that. But I I got a question about using vinegar, and I'm, I'm talking about uh, the uh, apple cider vinegar mm-hmm. on uh, people and pets. Okay. Uh, I mean, does it does it does it work as far as uh, I know it does fungal stuff, but I mean, does it work as far as like you know fleas or stuff like that? You know, that would be a question really for a veterinarian, and I'll I'll ask Dr. Kirby about that tomorrow if I can remember. I've never used it for those purposes, um, but I know that it's, you know, that it's good, a little bit of it in the water and things like that, and I it does take care of a lot of things. Uh, you know, used as a shampoo, it'll take care of head lice issues, and there, there are lots of other yeah. things out there. But um, how much benefit uh, the pets would get from it? Uh, very small quantities. I think it'd be just fine. But uh, I, I honestly don't know about fleas and such. I'll try to ask Dr. Kirby about that tomorrow. Yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll cut it down severely. But you know, this <laughs> the coast is weird, man. We'll go for months <laughs> without any problems, and then infestations like crazy. And just in the last two weeks, it's just been out of this world you know what it's not just the coast (laughs) it's everywhere we are we think we think we've got a little worse than everybody else but the hill country is not a whole lot different and uh yeah it's uh the populations uh of fleas and other things can be cyclical and uh um yeah you can have a, a real explosion in very short order i would you know where i would if if i were fighting fleas a lot i'd be just planning on putting out those beneficial nematodes two three four times a year because those knock the population down and the nematodes do have a residual they they live individually they live for 60 days or so but if they are finding other insects to reproduce in um, I know every time I've put them out for fleas, knock on wood, it's been a couple of years since before I had to treat again. So that would be my first line of defense against the fleas. Okay. But, uh, yeah, you know, I've heard of that, too. Um, and then if, if you're talking to Howard Garrett, uh, would you ask him what his formula is in the morning for he uses that apple cider vinegar for a drink. Yeah, I've uh, I've been in his home and watched him make his little uh, his his little smoothie. So uh, let me flip over to the eight o'clock uh, hour on my log and uh, put Howard's morning cocktail down. That way, I'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll well, ask him about it. That answers the question. Thanks a bunch, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Well, post-Thanksgiving. Well, thank you for that, and uh, onward and uh, into the holiday season, and uh, wish you the same as well, Jason. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Back to gardening. It's uh, Joe, Fay, and Don, and Joe is up first. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Uh, it's just a nice day out there. Any day I don't have to put on a coat, uh, I'm just as happy about that. And man, it was—it's it's like a sauna walking out there this morning. Very unusual. Yeah, I'm sitting on my deck now, and uh, I hope you can hear with all the roosters crowing and the squirrels fussing. But... <laughs> <laughs> the only place I would not want to be today is in a deer blind, because this sure is not very good deer hunting weather. But it's good for about everything else. Yes, sir. So I have a question about my palm trees. I'm a bit east of you in the Oak Park area, uh-huh. and I have I have four palm trees in my backyard. Two of them are molting those fronds just fine, but two of them have fronds literally almost all the way down their trunks. Okay. Do I need to worry about those fronds? Do those need to be removed, or are no. they okay? 
they're just fine. Are these all the same type of palm tree? Or are they different types of palms? No, sir. I believe they're all the same. Okay. Uh, two. It looks like two were planted uh, earlier and then two later. Two are very tall and slender, and all the palm fronds tend to molt off just fine. Mm-hmm. And then the other two, about the same height, or about look like about five or eight feet shorter than the other two. Uh-huh. But those are the ones that seem to keep the fronds on the trunks all the way down. They they may very well be just different kinds of palm trees, but um, and there are some very similar ones. Uh, for instance, uh, the genus Washingtonia. We have one called Robusta, one Folifera, and they're they're like first cousins, but. The more fronds a plant has on it, the more of the sun's energy it can harvest, and the you know the faster the tree is going to grow, the better off it's going to be. But just by nature, some some will hold more than others. My suspicion is that you actually have two similar but different types of palms, but it it makes no difference. Uh, I mean, if the fronds are in the way, get out there and carefully lop them off. Don't use a chainsaw unless you're super careful because that fibrous stuff can be um, can cause some issues cutting it, shall we say. But uh, totally up to you. Whether you leave them on, take them off, uh, the tree doesn't really care. Well, that was my question. You've answered it for me. One one more thing while I'm thinking about it. I have a bunch of loquat trees on my south fence. Uh-huh. Um, how big should loquats get? I mean, mine look like they're about the size of a golf ball. Is that about right? And when they turn or, or yellow-orange, then they're ready to harvest? When they start getting soft, they are ready to harvest. Um, there is a huge amount of variation in the fruit. Uh, and I don't know of anyone that has really developed a particular strain to have bigger fruit and more fruit. Uh, if you went around and sampled them off 20 trees in your neighborhood, uh, you'd probably get 20 different sizes, and some of them might actually have a small seed and a fair amount of flesh. Many of them will have a huge seed and very little flesh, so there's there's really no right or wrong to it, and there's no way of uh, really judging the health or whether the plant's performing the way it should. The genetics are just so mixed up in those things. Some of them are going to have big fruit with lots of meat. Some are going to have small fruits, so... Uh, um, can't really say one's, uh, you know, right or wrong. They're just different plants. Terrific. Well, thanks. You've answered my questions. I really appreciate it. I hope well, you have a good holiday. Season. And I wish the same for you. Do remember with all of your palms, the only part of that palm that is really alive on a single trunk palm is right up in the very top where those fronds are coming out. And that's why you can never top them. You can never really reduce their size. Because if something happens to kill that little part of the palm, it's, it's dead. Now, there are others like the Mediterranean fan palms and some of the ones we use more as houseplants. They tend to put new shoots off from the base. But uh, it sounds like what you have, maybe Sabals, maybe Washingtonias, maybe um, you know one of the others. But uh, do everything you can to protect that top. And if you're doing any pruning on them, uh, be certain that you're not messing with that little part directly in the center because that's the only part of that tree that's really alive. So take care of it. And Faye is up first. Good morning, Faye. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Good morning to uh, you. Um, we're um, looking at uh, having some beautiful weather, but know that the cold will come back. And so I had a <laughs> question related to that. Yeah, okay. I have, I have uh, quite a few uh, 
plants in uh, containers I've been taking in and out. And my question is on plumerias. I know we've talked about this on the program before, but uh, if I let those leaves come off and just keep them a little bit moist in a in a in a warm enough place. Will they overwinter without me taking them in and out all oh, the yeah. time? Oh, yeah. It's, there are people that literally pull them up and hang them in the garage. Remember that, of course, the better the care you give them, the stronger they're going to come out in the spring and the more blooms you're going to have long term. But as far as just getting through the winter, basically all you have to do is protect them from the cold. And not be concerned about keeping a, a level of moisture. Yeah. Again, if it's convenient to keep a little moisture in the soil, watering every couple of weeks or something, the plants will be happy with that. But uh, it, they're you know they're not going to die of uh, thirst if you don't get around to doing that. I imagine your life's about as busy as mine, and it's one thing that uh, it, it just doesn't take that much time. So, yes, if you can give them a little moisture periodically, all the better. But if you can't, don't worry about it. Is it just keeping them above freezing, or do they need to be a good ways above freezing? Well, where are we on that? Eh, technically, they need to be just above freezing, but trusting the weatherman is a losing proposition. Um, yes. Because, I mean, I've seen plenty of times that they've set a low of 40 and we've had heavy frost, which would be very damaging. So um, if you have a place that you can move them to, uh, whether, you know, wherever it is, and you have a milk house heater or something like that in there, uh, that's probably going to be just fine. And, and keeping them above freezing will keep them from being damaged. You wouldn't want to keep them too warm because you don't don't want them to think it's spring and try to sprout out. But uh, kind of like the inside of your refrigerator, anywhere from, you know, 40 to 60 degrees uh, is going to be ideal for them for the winter months. Good, good. Well, that that will save me some time and effort. Um, the um, uh, let's see on. Um, well, I was going to ask you one about one plant, and I know you get a lot of questions like this, and I thought I would never ask one, but <laughs> I reached. I'm happy to answer <laughs> every question you. I can. Yeah. <laughs> I reached down in the pot, and there was something large, and I thought, well, maybe I buried a rock or something. Well, I pulled it up, and it looks sort of like a um, uh, garlic clove, like it has all those little segmented mm-hmm. parts of that. Um, and it's it's large and hard, and so I just threw some soil on it, and it has some little green um, very small leaves that are coming out. So this this thing probably had dozens of uh, little cloves, so uh-huh. to speak. Well, what what grows like that? Many different types of bulbs do. In fact, probably your true lilies um, almost all do that. If you ever looked at an Easter lily or the uh, what they call tiger lilies and things like that. And not to mention just about anything in the allium family, which is uh, includes your garlics and uh, onions and things like that. There, there are pretty fair number of of things that grow um, in that fashion, uh, and you know would be joined to the base. Now there are other things like some of your different. Um, oh, what am I trying to say? The oxalis group that will make little bublets off to the side of that 
although they're not joined in the same fashion that a clove or that a bulb of garlic would be, but just about anything in the oxalis family is going to grow with clusters of little bulbs. And, you know, a number of uh, um, things that we plant as attractive plants, little grape hyacinths will make large numbers of little bulblets off to the side. So uh, it could be a lot of different things. And as I was explaining to somebody um, who just was explaining you know, expressed an interest in such things. Plants are classified by their flowers. We call it their floral morphology. They're never classified by how they grow. So uh, there are a lot of different things you could be looking at there. But once they bloom, we'll have a lot better idea of what it is. So that large clump that's there, just leave it like that. It'll would you just leave it like that? I, I like these experiments. <laughs> Until you know what it, it up. <laughs> you, you've got it in a pot, so it's not going to become invasive, and um, you can keep up with where it is. So, yeah, I just leave it right there and um, and be very interested to see how it blooms. I mean, even amaryllis uh, grow that way. Um, you would find in the case of many bulbs, you would have a larger central bulb and then smaller bulbs all the way around, whereas in the case of garlic, all those little different bulblets are going to be about the same size and shape. But at this point, I just leave it alone, and I know your life's about as busy as mine. You've got plenty of other things to do. Just keep an eye on it, and when it blooms, call me, and we'll talk about what it probably is. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I, I love plants, and uh, the more the more interesting things that uh, uh, keep us interested in the garden, not that we're not, but, you know, it's just kind of nice to have some fun stuff going on. I couldn't agree more. Uh, qu- quick question on peas and beans. Right now, uh, I can plant peas, can I? Is that right? Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. have a crop? You can, plant, uh, you can plant regular shell peas or you can plant the edible pod peas, some of which make a bigger pea than others. I mean, the uh, that that's just basically we have one group we call edible pod peas. It incures everything, includes everything from sugar snaps to um, the sugar pods, uh, organ type peas, and then we have those peas that we do not eat the pod. And there's one of those called Wando. There's another one called Little Marvel. They're what we would buy in the in the grocery stores, probably the sewer peas or something like that. But uh, those two general groups, a uh, great time to plant them, especially where you are. Well, I'll uh, be busy out there with some uh, some peas today. And <laughs> I'm sure, thank you for taking well, my questions. If it's it's if it's the first time you're planting them in an area, use a little bit of inoculant along with them and. Um, I always I planted some peas this week myself and little short soaking garret juice and then dusting with the inoculant and uh, uh, wonderful wintertime crop. Well, I'll get after that because peas are peas are pretty wonderful in the diet. That's <laughs> they sure. certainly are. They have Thank a you, wonderful Bob. weekend and uh, no, we'll talk again. And uh, let me go ahead and get uh, Don in. Good morning, Don. Morning, Bob. The morning, same sir. question. Same question I've had the last four years. Okay. I'm thinking about planting a Christmas tree in my front yard. <laughs> okay. Should and it'd be coming out of a sand field mm-hmm. and I have flint rock. Is it better to select like a four foot tree to get as much root as I can? Um if you're planting from a container, 
you select any size tree you like, Don, where you're not doing any damage to the root system. Now, bald and burlapped, I would uh, very definitely stay on the smaller end. But um, nowadays, especially this time of year, you should be able to find beautiful specimens of Italian stone pine or Aleppo pine or Deodore cedar, all of which uh, develop a nice Christmas tree shape. And um, I always tell people just uh, buy the biggest plants you can afford, and you should do very well with them in the Divine area, any of those. Well, the problem is that Divine has a Christmas tree farm. Uh-huh. And I was thinking about buying one and digging it up and taking it from the sand and transplanting it into Flint Rock. Oh, it's not going to be a problem, but... Uh, um, it's, you know, I would very definitely stay to a smaller size there and, uh, don't use it as a Christmas tree. Go ahead and put it directly in the ground and maybe decorate it as an outdoor tree because unfortunately a lot of these, uh, places that offer to dig trees for you, you know, they go through a lot of shock in being dug and they really don't want to sit inside the house for a week before they get in the ground. If you're wanting to have one out in the yard, dig it and replant it, and um, it's uh, you should do very well with it. But digging it, putting it in a pot, putting it in the living room for any length of time, um, not a lot of the trees will survive that kind of uh, Christmas treatment. Yeah, my question is, is when I take it from the sand and put it in flint rock, do I need break to bring some of the sand from the place it's at, or put in potting soil or whatever I need to no I just I I just go with basically you're always better to just put back into the hole what you took out you have some soil around your your flint and um, uh, if you try to do too much soil improvement the tree has no um, you know no reason to grow its roots out into the surrounding soil as long as that hole drains well as long as you have good drainage it should do just fine in your flint rock. Yeah, because several years ago, it used to be the apple orchard, dwarf apples from uh-huh. Dina. Right. They contracted me to dig out all of the trees that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. So they come out real easy over there, let's just put it that way. Well, you're looking at cottony root rot is the problem of why apples don't usually do well, but conifers are not affected by cottony root rot, so that's not a that's not a problem at all. I just want to make sure before I commit myself into digging holes in the rock <laughs> Well, if you decide to transplant a tree, go for it. But let me tell you, if you just intend on having a real good, a real good tree out there, I'd sure consider getting a tree that's been growing in a container for a while and has a, a well-established root system. Not a lot of those transplanted Christmas trees uh, uh, make it through the holiday season. But you're a good gardener; you probably do okay with it. But I'm not sure. It's going to take some time before it gets reestablished enough that it can really take off and grow. So I'm, I am I question the value that you're getting there, but uh, give it a try and see how you do if it doesn't work out. The only problem with buying you know, them in containers is that uh, for a lot of us, this is the only time of year we have access to those trees, and they bring them in from areas where they grow a lot more of them. And while I think you'll find that at most nurseries, you've got a pretty good supply of those trees after the holidays, it may be, you know, next December before you start finding a lot of them again. So um, maybe plant true, too, and uh, 
plant them out there and see which one does better for you. I just hate for you to put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And like you say, we've had this discussion several times over the years. But uh, you do what works for you. But uh, I don't think there's any question that the tree will do well for you if you get enough of the root system and uh, get it back in the ground pretty quickly. Water it in with Garrett juice and uh, keep it mulched, and uh, you'll have your own little your own little piney wood started. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. You're certainly welcome, Don. And Amir is up first. Good morning. Bob, thank you for taking my call. I thank you for calling. You. Got a question for you. The last few years, I've had a pretty brown lawn. Based on your recommendations, I started using some growing green. Uh-huh. And now I have the greenest lawn <laughs> in the neighborhood. Unfortunately, most of the green is clover and broadleaf weed. Okay. What do you recommend I do? I, I'm, I'm currently renting. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to be moving probably mid to early summer next year. So I'd like something that I can enjoy the spring green lawn, but nothing that really breaks the bank because I'm not going to enjoy it afterwards. Well, is there anything there in the way of permanent grass now? Any St. Augustine, any Bermuda? Is there yes, a- yeah, I believe it's St. Augustine. Okay. Then all I would probably do is water and put some more of that growing green fertilizer on there because uh, – that you know that's that's going to encourage the good grass that's there uh, if you told me you were going to be moving in may i would tell you to go overseed it with uh, one of the rye grasses um there's a new one out there called pantera that uh is one that we're real pleased with but now as soon as it gets hot it's gonna it's gonna die out and um Again, if if your move date is July, I'm going to concentrate on on what's there because the uh, the ryegrass is probably not going to make it if we have a typical weather pattern. But uh, if if getting you through April or May is going to be long enough to have a beautiful yard, the annual ryegrass is very very inexpensive. Uh, you get a good blend, so you get two or three different kinds in there. And, you know, you've, you've got instant yard because it's going to sprout and green up uh, within, certainly within a week. You're going to have a gorgeous lawn and it's going to stay pretty until it gets hot. But as soon as it starts getting hot, that's going to be the end of it. Now, it's just fine to do a combination of the two. And that would be to, you you mow regularly to keep all the broadleaf weeds and everything else under control. Yeah. But uh, you can overseed what's there and uh, you'd oversee it a little bit more lightly, and you would water, you would care for it, so that if your stay gets extended a little bit beyond what you're anticipating, uh, the St. Augustine that is there to begin with, I mean, that stuff can come out and grow like a weed in the spring. You can go from having just little spots of it here and there to having the yard that you'll hate to move away from. So, if it were me, if I were concerned about, you know, time, money, and everything else, I'd probably just oversee it with winter rye and be making plans to get to my new destination as soon as possible. But um, if you're not real sure how long you're going to be in that home, I would oversee it a little bit more lightly with the uh, with the winter rye blend. But I would fertilize. I would be sure that you continue even through the winter months. You want to water every two or three weeks if we don't have a good soaking rain and we have not had that yet. I mean we've had drizzle, drizzle, drizzle but not nearly enough rain Uh to do any good but uh, um, your lawnmower is your best weed controller and like say if you want to supplement it uh, annual rye seeds cheap and easy. Just stay away from what they call Oregon rye 
that stuff turns into it's just it gets way too tall it gets to where it's so thick it's hard to get through it with a mower be sure you're getting one of the dwarf rye if you do want to overseed and not not the home depot stuff not the not the old oregon rye okay well thank you very much one more question about a weed that i have that's plaguing my neighborhood it's it's very thick and woody has white flowers um and it can grow pretty tall pretty quickly do you recommend just pulling that out or is there or just keep mowing over it and call it good tell me a little bit more about what the plant itself looks like and the flowers are they how large uh, so are okay go ahead very small about the size of my pinky nail white flowers uh-huh um the the stem itself is very woody and thick to the point where I may, when I mow over it, it hurts to stand on it. Mm. Um, kind of very small leaves, um, not it, it, very kind of a, a evergreen green, very dark, rich green, the, the leaves themselves. Um, that's, that doesn't, most of what we're seeing in bloom right now are um you know lantanas and things i'm just i'm i'm uh not real sure what you would be what you'd be looking at that is that white and that woody at the same time does it pull up easily or is it well rooted into the ground fairly easily it's a it's a thick woody stem but it it does pull up fairly easily okay it probably and got a lot of leaves on it. Yeah, it, mostly the flowers now. Could are are the leaves up and down the stem, or the leaves mainly at ground level? Mostly ground level. It's the flowers okay, that yeah. poke up. It's probably some form of dandelion. They're white dandelions as well as yellow. Um, you can pull them if you like, but uh, I would I would tend to just mow them off and just wear shoes. <laughs> it's uh, because okay. you know the problem with that stuff is. When it does make seeds, it makes thousands of seeds, and uh, you know you're going to be seeing your chiropractor regularly if you spend a lot of time bent over <laughs> trying to pull those blasted things out. So, I would tend to uh, I'd tend to just be mowing it off as low as you possibly can, and uh, after about the second or third mowing, the individual plants of it will die out. And uh, long term, we might be talking about something different, but this is a property you're going to occupy for the next uh eight or nine months yeah, and i'd months. I just i'd just be mowing you've got you've got other things that are probably going to be a better use of your time oh i appreciate it bob thank you so much always a pleasure have a wonderful weekend and thanks for the call you as well. thank you bye all right uh let's see what judy's up to good morning judy hey bob good morning good morning i got you on speaker so i can be writing notes so okay. can you hear me well i hear you just fine you've got a better speaker than most people do Okay. Uh, my question uh, mainly is fertilizing the lawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's established, I think, in Soisia, uh, which the builders put in. I believe that's what it is. And um, uh, we've just mowed it, but it was so wet yesterday. Now, I'd like to fertilize. That's my big question is getting it fertilized uh, for a winter. Sure. Well, the you know this this business of a winterizer fertilizer is strictly a marketing ploy. Uh, in the organic world, we use the same fertilizer year round. You do not need to use different numbers. You do not need to buy something that says winterizer. Uh, the same fertilizer that you use spring, summer, and fall will work fine for winter. 
Um, and there are lots of good ones out there. Medina's Growing Green perhaps is the most widely available. Nature's Creation makes one they call premium lawn food that's 100% organic and actually smells good. Um, Maestro okay. Grow makes one they call uh, Texas Tea. Uh, there are lots of good organic fertilizers. And the other thing about organics versus the synthetic ones is you don't have to worry about it being wet. This kind of weather you put out the... Uh, you know, all the big brands, you put it out, it'll burn the heck out of stuff. But your organic stuff, you can put it out rain or shine, hot or cold, wet or dry. But uh, I I would, by all means, I would certainly suggest that you fertilize, but I'd stick with one of the good organic products and I'd do it as soon as you can. The one other thing I would tell you is that if it is indeed zoysia that the builder planted, it is probably a variety of zoysia, which is called Jammer, J-A-M-U-R, it is very, very susceptible to brown patch fungus disease, which is very common in like this. Um, if uh, I would watch it carefully, uh, and if you just want to be on the safe side, I'd also pick up a bag of whole ground cornmeal, put that out. Don't mix it with your fertilizer, but put it out along with your fertilizer. That's going to keep your zoysia a whole lot healthier through the winter months because the cornmeal grows a beneficial fungus called trichoderma, which will wipe out all the different fun fungal diseases which may affect your zoysia. Now, I love some of the Dempster zoysias, the El Toro, the Emerald, Xeon, but unfortunately, the one the builders are planting is uh, one called Jammer, which has a broader blade and is very, very disease susceptible. So do fertilize, but if you're seeing any areas where it doesn't look good, put out a thin layer and we're figuring, you know, maybe five pounds for 100 square feet or something like that of the whole ground cornmeal, and you'll totally take care of the fungus problem. Okay. Okay. Now, I've got to understand here. I think I, I misunderstood what you said on putting the cornmeal. First of all, can I fertilize with this wet grass today? Yes. Yes, totally. No problem at all, as long as you're using a good organic product. And uh, that would be Medina or Maestro Grow or Nature's Creation or any of those, but yes, today would be a great day to put your fertilizer out. Okay. Now the cornmeal, you said not with the fertilizer, or yes with the mix. Mix it with the fertilizer. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mix it. You can put them on five minutes apart, but if you were to dump it into the spreader, it would separate. So don't try to do it and just make one pass and put both of them out. I would make a separate application. Makes no difference which is first, which is second. And the cornmeal is optional. The fertilizer, I think, is is something you really need to do. But if you've had any issues with brown patch or if you see any sign of fungal disease, uh, which is very common at this time of year, I don't want you to see it buying some expensive toxic fungicide because cornmeal will do everything you need to do. Okay. Um can I get these organic products at HEB? Do I have to go to a nursery? I'm way out in Bernie. Um, you, golly, I'm not sure what you will find at HEB, but we're not going to find much in any fertilizer there. Go over to uh, Hill Country African Violets. They're right over there. They're open seven days a week, and uh, they're they're just near the corner of I-10 and Cascade Caverns Road. They're going to have everything you're looking for over there. I buy all my flowers there. Yeah. Oh. He's got Ken's got good good fertilizers too. Uh, he's probably got the Medina out there, and uh, if you uh, if you need the cornmeal, he's probably got that under the Nature's Creation label. So, uh, Mister Frobazy will take good care of your needs. One more question now: um, Somebody bought a maize, 
Uh-huh. I have a big bag of Amaze here. Uh-huh. And uh, it says uh, weeds and grasses, that it, it kills weeds and grasses. So what is it for? You don't put it on lawn then, do you? Uh, I certainly wouldn't. It probably, um, um, it, it's used as a, uh, a nuts edge killer for one thing. Um, it's just one of those chemical herbicides that kills a lot of things other than what you want to kill. <laughs> Give it away. <laughs> <laughs> to your worst enemy. All right. And I will mention, if for some reason you can't get by uh, um, the folks there at uh, Hill Country African Violets, just a little further down the road, if they're closer to you, uh, Stone and Soil Depot down there, they usually keep the Medina fertilizer there as well. Um, yeah, but right those. Okay. Yeah, you've got two choices. There are people that are going to have what you're looking for. Great. Okay, thank you. Have a great day. You do the same, Judy. I sure appreciate the call. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Sandra and Rudy and Liz. And Sandra's up first. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, so I have a question. We live close to McAllister Park in a subdivision, and we have a yard that's fenced in in the back. And probably for, like for the past two weeks, we have cats in the backyard, but we've noticed um, like an animal defecating in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's similar to dog feces, but it's not a dog. It can't. There's no way a dog could get in the yard. Uh-huh. So we've kind of narrowed it down by looking online that we believe it's a raccoon. And I mean, we've seen possums, we've seen armadillos, um, but uh, almost. I mean, my husband's fenced off the whole bottom of the fence, thinking right. that something was coming under. So we're pretty sure it's going over. Yep. We're just trying to figure out what they're looking for. About a year ago, we planted a uh, new St. Augustine grass and Mm -hmm. i put the nematodes down prior and um you know trying to make sure there's no grubs that they're looking for sure but um we're trying to figure out we can't catch it we can't we can't see what Mm -hmm. it is that's coming there and doing it so and we do have two cats i don't know if i mentioned that but we do have cats but they'll let anybody come into the yard so (laughs) yeah i i think it's more likely a possum than a raccoon raccoon feces usually are filled with uh more grains and seeds and things like that and uh but it doesn't matter uh both of those creatures will very definitely come over your fence um, and you've got lots of other things in McAllister Park, including coyotes and, and fun things like that. But um, uh, it's, it, there's, there's no way that you can totally eliminate all the things that the creatures would be coming after, because while beneficial nematodes will very definitely take care of grub worms, uh, a lot of things are as anxious uh, to eat earthworms as they are, and of course beneficial nematodes have no impact on earthworms. So this is just, this is one of the issues of living next to uh, open space and uh, the good news is that mm, these things are relatively easy to trap and remove uh, with a good live trap, and <laughs> I don't know where to tell you to take them. I'd, I'd normally say take them to McAllister Park, but, you know, you might you might relocate them further away. But, um, and, and you know, you, you can trap them without any problem. It would be a good thing to do to get rid of them. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, I hope you never leave any cat food or anything outside. A lot of people 
feed their kitty cats outdoors or dogs too and that just invites uh i know of nothing that loves cat food more than raccoons especially and and i've got pictures sent by various friends of the literally the cats and raccoons sitting there having dinner together you might say but um (laughs) do everything you can to encourage them to go elsewhere by not giving them any source of food if they're going to a specific area you could go to a nursery and get a bag of blood meal uh Mm -hmm. blood meal is a great supplement it's a great fertilizer very high in iron and good for all your plants, but raccoons and possums both hate the smell of it and will stay away from it. But that's not really practical trying to do your whole yard. But uh, And there are various repellents out there which may or may not work. But I'll be honest with you, you've got so many of those creatures living in very close proximity to you. Once they find your yard, they're going to keep coming back. And uh, I think long-term, you or a friend, or there are people you can pay to do it, um, trapping and removing is going to be by far your best bet. The the secret is use something that won't be attractive to your kitty cats because you don't want them to wind up in the live trap. But um, right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a very doable thing. But uh, repellents are going to only go so far and this problem's not going to go away. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your advice. I listen to you every Saturday and really enjoy listening to your show. Well, I appreciate that. Do you have just little small areas that are dug up, like they'll dig a little hole that's three or four inches across, making a problem in your yard? Yeah, we haven't had that yet. We did like a, maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. We had those little divots in right. the yard, and we kind of deduced that it was raccoons that's kind of or or the i guess i don't know which animal but we knew something was back there doing it and um so uh i we haven't had that yet and we didn't want them to mess up our new yard right so that was like we were trying to get a jump on it this time and like i said it's coming it seems to be coming out in the daylight so that's why i didn't know if it was a uh I don't know how, uh, like an armadillo, I know they move around at night, right? Well, all three of them are principally nocturnal, but mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, uh, just two days ago, I, I helped a friend get a raccoon out of a neighbor's yard <laughs> who was out of town, but one of their friends had gone by to feed her animals and said, hey, you know, you got an armadillo in here tearing up your yard. So anyway, we went and and eased Mr. Armadillo over the fence. But um, they're all out there, and this kind of weather, um, especially this time of year, they can be out 24-7. Their most oh, okay. active time is always going to be um, at night, but uh, you may see them out morning or evening. And unfortunately, you know, raccoons can carry a lot of different diseases and things, including distemper, and sometimes when you see them out in the middle of the day, it's because they're not well. So... Um, whatever you do, do it with care and caution, but, um, uh, you can try the repellents, but I think long-term you ended up trapping him and taking him somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your help. You're always welcome, Sandra. You get out and have a wonderful weekend and thank you. Yes. Certainly. Bye. Good morning, Rudy. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. A couple of questions. Okay. uh, One is my cherry patines. They seem to have gotten a second growth though lately because I thought it was over with about August or September. And uh, I have three big bushes, and they are just sprouting red all over the place. (laughs) 
And I mean, I love them. I love chili patines, but now how do I store them for the winter? Do I put them in the fridge or put them in water or what do I do with those? Well, it's, um, you can always freeze the peppers if you like. I'll tell you what I would consider doing, and this is not my idea. I don't know if you know Cappy Lawton, who owns Cappy's La Fond on Main and mm-hmm. oh, various other good oh, yeah, places. Sure. But Cappy, Cappy splits them and roasts them, and he said if you think a chili pekin is good, you ought to try a roasted chili pekin. And if you do that, you can store them, you know, I would store them dry, but um, you can, you know, you can actually dry them and use them almost like pepper flakes or um, the one thing they certainly, they will lose texture, so to speak. That's the only problem with freezing peppers of any sort is that they don't stay, you know, crisp and crunchy. Uh, They'll be, you know, more the consistency of a cooked pepper, but... uh, um, I'm with you. They are great, great flavoring, but, uh, uh, try smoking some. And, uh, I think you'll find that'd be one of the best things you've ever had. And you can go use those so many different ways. Uh, you can also, you know, make flavored vinegars out of them. Uh, in fact, uh, if you're looking for a simple Christmas present to give friends that enjoy such things, uh, Jill McKean will turn ordinary, um, you know, like an oil and vinegar, things like that. They'll turn it into just a delicacy, so to speak. But mm-hmm. uh, okay. And uh, you can certainly do that with them. You can pickle them if you like. You can actually can them. Um, I there's something that I've I've not done with them. I mean, I've canned plenty of jalapenos and things like that. But uh, um, you can actually you know go through a water bath process and can them and use them like that once again the texture is going to change so um again i'm back to i'm back to smoking and roasting is one of the best things to do with them uh and if you don't have time to do that just you know pick them clean them and freeze them just realize the texture is going to be different after they're frozen now if you do roast them uh after that what do you store them in like maybe a tupperware or something or i think that would be fine or you can uh uh, store them in the refrigerator, just in a Ziploc bag or Tupperware container or something like that. It's probably always very best. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And my next question, Bob, is I'm weird in that I love the, the native oak trees. And uh, how do I grow those from acorns? I've got tons of acorns out here. I live in Helotus. Uh-huh. And uh, I've got uh, acorns. I'd like to plant some of these native oaks. Oh, well, I'm with you. Uh, they're you know, there are some really good oaks. Uh, do you have a a favorite oak? or Because, you know, we have everything from bur oak no, to Lacey's like oak. Texas, I like the Texas native, the little gnarly ones that are all bent and crooked and all that. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a sign of where they're growing. That's not a characteristic of the tree. That just means oh, you're going right. where you have thin soils. But um, they're very easy to germinate. Uh, you know, basically any kind of pot or container, you want to put them in just uh, native soil is fine. Or you can use potting soil. You want to bury them about an inch down, and it doesn't matter which end is up or down. They will sprout and grow. And okay. um, the one thing that you will need to do is when you plant them up, be sure and put some hardware cloth or chicken wire over the top. 
because oh, yeah. those bushy-tailed tree rats that most people call squirrels, they will come oh. dig them up and have them for supper. They but, will decimate it. Yeah. They, uh, they, if you want to be 100% successful, Rudy, take gather your acorns and throw them in a bucket of water. The ones that sink are good. The ones that float may have a little worm or something inside of them that's uh, eaten out a lot of the, the uh, meaty part that would grow. But throw them in a bucket of water. The ones that sink are going to be good. Plant them, and you should get close to 100% germination. Good deal. I just got to protect them from the squirrels. That's it. Right, and well, the hogs and all those other things that come around when you live out in the country like we do. But, uh, no, you're going to be close to 100% successful with them. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Rob. You have a very great Christmas season. You do the same, Rudy. Always good Bye-bye. to talk to you. Goodbye. All right. Uh, we'll finish up the hour with Liz. Good morning, Liz. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you today? Good. I'm doing all right. Good. My question is... Uh, We've spoken before with my aunt situation that I have. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, and you had spoken of spinosad. Now, am I looking for a spinosad mixed with another, you know, uh, product, or am I looking, stri- you know, for spinosad itself? Well, there's a bad yeah um, situation. As an ant killer, um, you can use uh, the spinosad is the active ingredient. Uh, spinosad is put with a bait material and sold as come and get it by the Fertilome Company. And if you're fighting fire ants or harvester ants, then I would probably be looking for the come and get it. But just uh, for sugar ants, for the various nuisance ants we have around, um, just just straight spinosad. Spinosad and water will get them. I love the combination of spinosad and insecticidal soap. But I'm going to use that on aphids and mealybugs and other things. Uh, uh, not at all necessary to get the combination for the ants. You just want to get spinosad. You may buy it under the name of spinosad, or one of the ways it's most commonly available, and weird name, but it's called Captain Jack's Dead Bug. But uh, that is just straight spinosad, and uh, it will certainly do a very good job in killing the ants. Okay. Good. Uh, the other question is, is um, I have a bulb-type uh, plant, uh, leaf, thick leaf, green leaf. Okay. Uh, I guess the leaf is about maybe almost two feet uh, tall, but it, in the springtime it blooms a very pretty, almost like a tulip-type flower. And then once it's dead, then it has the little seeds up on top, which are little like brown balls. Okay. I don't know if I'm being a little bit specific here, but... <laughs> Uh, they're very, very pretty, you know, Easter springtime. Uh-huh. Uh, my question is right now, do you think it'd be okay if I separate them because they are, they spread and they look, uh, kind of like real tight together. They're almost like an iris type mm-hmm. bulb, not really an iris type, but anyway, it's a bulb type plant uh-huh. and I'm wanting to make more of. Okay. You right can, now, yeah, you can certainly divide them and, um, the time to do it, the best time to do it is when they are in their sort of dormant state where they don't have a lot of foliage, but, um, it, uh, you know, it, it sounds to me like it may be something in the amaryllis family and now, yes. now is very definitely an okay time to divide them. Now realize that if you are, you know, if some of the little bulblets off to the side that you're going to divide are going to be smaller, and some of them may have to have a year or two to grow, 
in order to get big enough to bloom. Uh, the bigger the bulb is, the, the more flowers it will have. And, of course, leaving them together in a clump, uh, they can sometimes put on multiple spikes of flowers. There's nothing at all wrong with dividing. And, uh, again, this would be an okay time of year to do that. But just recognize if any of those bulbs are small, they may skip a year or so of flowering to get a little bit bigger, to get a little bit stronger. So there's no guarantee that all the ones you divide will bloom this year. But, uh, again, this is a great time to do it. If you want to divide to share with friends or just have more for yourself, yeah, go for it. It's a fine time to do it. Okay, how about beneficial nematodes? Could I spray that like right now also? It would depend on what you're trying to control. Uh, Great time to control fleas. Great time to control ticks are coming down out of the trees now. Great time to control the thrips larvae. But uh, not really the time you'd be worried about grub worms or things like that. But, uh, yeah, it's fine to use them, but just be sure you have a reason to. Right now I have the pleasure of punching that button right there and saying good morning, Howard Garrett. Well, good morning, everybody. I am uh, enjoying my little stand right now outside the Marriott Hotel looking down at the Riverwalk. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's pretty impressive how quickly they cleaned up after last night. I didn't even know about the event uh, that they do the day after Thanksgiving. They oh, yeah. have a heck of a parade. <laughs> I'm not sure what it's called, but it was really a lot of fun. and. I've enjoyed watching the guys do their work this morning, getting it all cleaned up. Well, the lighting of the trees down there. The river walk's a fun place to be any time. And uh, um, I just one of San Antonio's really nice features. And uh, we're so glad to have you in our fair city, even if it is for just a very brief stay. Well, it's uh, fantastic. I just love coming down here. And it's interesting when you... Uh, Especially when you see it at this time of the year, all the cypresses have their reddish bronze, right, bronzy color on there, and and you realize that they really make the uh, the skeleton, the structure of the landscape. And even though there's a there's a lot of really pretty planting all through there, the cypresses are really the key feature of the thing. Bo and Logan were asking me a question. I wanted to run by you. What was the original? Uh, history of the Riverwalk. Was this a creek coming through town? Well, it's, it, it, it is quite a story, and if I can find a book at some point, I will get it to you and you can share with them. And uh, I'm not a San Antonio historian, but I knew a bit, do know a bit about uh, this um particular subject and it's it's always been the san antonio river um incarnate word college is uh you know a a few miles north of downtown and there is actually the spring is very close to there it's actually in the backyard of a friend and customer down there just off of patterson avenue of course it's not running now it uh it's only when the aquifer is up above a certain level. But the river has been a river for many years, and periodically it it has there have been some very major floods. And back in the uh, early 1900s, there was an extraordinarily 
destructive flood took place and there was actually a plan in place that they were going to get the Corps of Engineers to basically put it in a big pipe downtown and not have a river go through there where it could cause all the flooding problems again. And there was an architect, and I'm I think I'm remembering his name right, named Robert Hugman, H-U-G-M-A-N, and said, no, there are other ways to handle this. We can build a couple of dams, you know, upstream. We can do a diversion um, to protect downtown, and we can turn this into a, a feature. And I want to say the title of the book is uh, A Dream Come True or something like that. And uh, good friend Vern Zunker also has uh, done a book on that subject. And I'll see if I can find one or more of those for you. But uh, uh, there is an interesting further story about that. And I'm trying to remember how long ago it was. It was sometime in the 80s that they decided to take one further step, and that was to drill a giant diversion tunnel underneath downtown San Antonio to carry off floodwaters. And uh, oh, wow. I think I had heard that story, yeah. But anyway, it, it, it's interesting because Roberta and I were getting a Beautify San Antonio Award, and the night we went, their program was on this diversion tunnel, and they showed all the pictures of the huge machine they used to do it. So anyway, that in a nutshell, there's a lot more to the story, but uh, we almost ended up with no river walk in san antonio because there was a serious plan at one time to do away with the river and just put it in a big pipe so thank god that didn't happen i bet it came pretty close that's a good story i'll try to find that uh book and but basically it was a flowing river oh yes it was was a flowing river and uh as I say, and I don't remember 1903 or something like that. Anyway, within that 10-year period, there was just a devastating flood down there, and that's what uh, kind of uh, spurred the action. Just one other little side note, that it did not really become a big tourist attraction. And, uh, you know, I was married to a San Antonio native for a lot of years, and, and she told me that back before Hemisphere, which was our World's Fair event, it was a... Uh, uh, it was a part of town that you simply did not go to, but the city fathers yeah. made the decision in cleaning things up for Hemisphere, they turned it into the beginnings of uh, what you see down there today, which is a wonderful tourist attraction. It's just fantastic. I, just, I, <laughs> I, I come down here every chance uh, I get. Um, one other thing I wanted to throw in before I forget it, I heard you talking to one of your listeners about uh, Chili Pekin. Yes. We have a, or Chili Patine, and there's a question in my mind about what exactly is the difference between those two. I think they're very similar, but we had a, we have a, an intern that likes to grow it, and she's she's pretty uh, fascinated that it perennializes here in, mm-hmm. in the Dallas area, and she she roasts them like you uh, suggested, but she just does them whole. Uh-huh. And uh, she, she gave us some uh, mason jars uh, full of them. And, uh, boy, they, they hold up really well. I crunch them up and put them in various dishes. And I even add some to my uh, herb tea that I drink uh, in the morning sometimes. And it's a it's a pretty easy way to uh, manage them. Just oh, yeah. throw them on a cook, cookie sheet and, and roast them uh, whole and don't even have to cut them up. But... Um, it's a, and it's a pretty little plant too. I've got uh, fruit on my plants mm-hmm. 
in Dallas right now, even <laughs> you know after going through twenty degree weather. Yeah. So I did not realize it to be hardy up there. They're they're hardy, of course, uh, here and at my ranch. And some years they do freeze down, but they always come right back out. Yep. And uh, many years they're evergreen, but they're 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 very very tasty. And uh, oh, the uh, the roasting that your intern does. Um, does it mellow the flavor at all? Because quite frankly, fresh off the plant, they're they're too hot for my touch, but uh, for my yeah, taste, it does. But. It does mellow them. They're still hot, but I think it's uh, a greatly improved flavor to mm-hmm. uh, to roast them. It really kind of uh, mellows them out just a little bit, and I would recommend giving it a try. Absolutely. The other thing I wanted to mention to you, my uh, column that will run in the uh, Dallas in the uh, Dallas Morning News this Thursday, and so it'll appear on DirtDoctor.com right after that, is on making crispy pecans. And it is something I highly recommend people try, too, if you haven't tried it yet. And I I put my original recipe that I got from another gardener years and years ago, but also we also have a friend that makes an alternative version of it. My formula, my recipe is so simple. You soak the... uh, pecan halves in salt water basically Hmm. for a long time eight hours or longer and then you cook them at the lowest temperature that your oven will go you know down to 140 or whatever the lowest temperature and you do it for at least 12 hours and sometimes longer than that makes it uh, even better and the flavor just explodes in the pecans it's amazing how good and uh it's a d- dessert that's really good for you or a snack to eat any time and so you're not adding any seasoning or any sugar or butter or anything else it's just the good old pecan well now the the recipe i use is nothing but maybe a little butter on the cookie sheet uh-huh. uh when you put and then turn them as you're doing that slow cooking uh, our friend Lovey, her formula is quite, and she got it out of some book, old book, uh, from long ago, I think. And hers includes not only sea salt, but also a little bit of cinnamon, mm-hmm. a little garlic, a little garlic <laughs> powder, a little cayenne pep, uh, powder, and a dash of Tabasco. <laughs> and it, that sounds like it would be too hot, but yeah. you know, Judy can't eat hot stuff at all and she loves it It really really puts a great flavor and plus the fact it's hers recipe is quicker to make you just simply throw them in a a cast iron skillet with the ingredients and you just bake them in the uh, oven until they're nice and crisp it's really an easier way to go than my recipe well it's interesting i've not heard of the salt water soak but that that is very interesting in that it would pull the Pull the water moisture out of them, but retain all the oils, which would certainly, you know, enhance the flavor. So I guess there are lots of different things. There, there are lots of people that, you know, toast uh, pecans with with different things. And I've heard of everything from maple syrup to honey to lots of different recipes. And I always volunteer to sample anything any would like anybody would yeah, like right. to bring a <laughs> a big ten of them by because they're they are all so good. In fact, uh oh I had uh I shared with uh Roberta and Ed for Thanksgiving. Uh, another friend uh, does the same thing with pumpkin seeds, pepitas, and uh-huh. uh puts a little maple 
sugar and various other things with those but yeah it's uh, uh for for pretty healthy treats uh good old texas provides us with a number of things and you actually brought up one thing i had a caller early in the show was talking about uh the apple cider vinegar and said would you please ask howard to uh talk about because i know in the past you occasionally do a smoothie with apple cider vinegar along with breakfast and uh ask you ask what your recipe was there oh it just varies all over the place bob sometimes i just put it in water uh with my when i'm uh, taking my vitamins in the morning there's Mm -hmm. nothing more than that in it and i also do wheatgrass you know a a teaspoon of uh, kind of a rounded teaspoon of wheatgrass sometimes in it but we in the past i've put everything in it from yogurt to uh uh, powdered protein kinds of things. I think that's sure. more of a, more of a personal taste right. thing than, than anything. Some people don't like the taste of apple cider vinegar. Sure, and I've gotten to where I I kind of like it, so I yeah. I just mix it in whatever I happen to have around that I'm using that morning. Well, I I don't find it objectionable. I I would not say it's something that I would drink strictly for pleasure, but I think you can blend it. You know, almost make the way you would make any smoothie at all, and. Uh, I, again, I don't find it at all objectionable, and I I think it's very good, very good thing for just you know an overall health drink, so to speak. One of the things I do, I do a herb tea uh, on Sunday mornings, especially, and I mention it as I start to do my show, and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I'll put the apple cider vinegar in the herb tea. Now I do it kind of like I do the molasses. I don't put it in until it has steeped for a while. I don't do it when it's still almost boiling hot mm-hmm. right i think if you do the molasses and the apple cider vinegar too early it probably probably you know hurts some of the beneficial aspects of sure. the uh, apple cider vinegar sure you know i'm just seeing something i had a question about i was wondering how they handled all the leaves uh-huh. and all the small debris in the river and i'm seeing it right now it's a it's a barge that has a great big <laughs> uh diamond uh you know v-shaped thing that almost reaches all the way across the the river and that's how they're pushing the leaves on down and actually catching them in great big bags Mm -hmm. so i guess they take it to the landfill or the compost pile from here well the basic thank goodness is to the compost pile they uh san antonio has pretty good program for recycling um brush and things like that and that's where all the leaves go so thank god we don't put it in the landfill but yeah they're they're pretty uh pretty active in keeping the river clean and you know the river's not deep in most places it's probably no more than you know four feet deep and um it's it's very interesting they they work hard in the early morning hours to because it is such a such a popular place it's it's very good for tourism shall we say and when they do they actually once a year they drain the river and do a very thorough cleaning and it's just amazing the things that that come out of the bottom that river i'm sure some of them put there intentionally and some of them put there quite accidentally but yeah it's i'm i'm glad you're enjoying the river walk because it's a pretty place you know you can if you're in for a longer stroll you can actually uh we've enjoyed uh dining or or drinking together there at the pearl uh the old brewery there and uh the river walk actually extends that far up if you want to take a real long walk now well, Logan and Bo, after we uh, head back to Dallas, are going to go there. They haven't uh, visited that. And Bo's never been to the Alamo, so he's going to get a couple <laughs> of more treats today. 
<laughs> well, it's uh, you, you picked a nice warm day, if somewhat drizzly. I think it's supposed to turn off to be a uh, a pretty nice day uh, before it all is said and done. And uh, we're sure looking forward to seeing you guys over at uh, Shades of Green a little later. I, I might tell you I was thinking about you earlier in the week and think actually thinking about Tater and Nellie. But uh, it was a picture that someone had of a, a man walking a somewhat larger dog. But the caption was, until I acquired a lab, I did not realize how much of the world was edible. <laughs> I, I thought that could go with some a uh, couple of smaller dogs that I know as well from what you've told us about the scavenging that they do around your yard. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's a good quote. Yeah, Nellie, the tree climber, has taught uh, uh, the a little tighter, how delicious bark is to eat and, and various <laughs> sticks in the garden and acorns and everything else. It's pretty funny. Oh, goodness, you know, our, our four-legged friends. Well, hope it's been a hope it's been a good holiday for you. Hope your, your family golfing and all went well. Did you uh, see anything new or different that caught your attention uh, down in the uh, Victoria area? No, not really. We played our usual. We came in right in the middle of the pack, uh, seven under par. It took 11 under par to a win. They had fun with family and friends down there. So that's our, our annual deal. We played in a little bit of drizzling uh, rain, but mm-hmm. it was good. Did uh, our usual of eating too much wonderful uh, Thanksgiving <laughs> food. So hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. We'll uh, talk again next week i'll see you guys a little later this morning and we will uh, continue our visits well i'll look forward to it howard and uh, just you are one of the things we are all so thankful for that you spend a little time with us on the weekend and of course uh, all your wonderful books and uh website and online uh, courses um just gardeners all across this country and especially here in texas have a lot to be thankful for with all uh, that you do so you guys have a wonderful morning down on the river walk we'll look forward to seeing you after a while thanks bob see thank you, you sir <laughs> we'll look bye. forward to it bye all right. Well, we've got Thomas and Charles waiting. Two open lines. Uh, grab one if you'd like. You just heard the numbers, 210-599-5555. Also, thank you. Uh, Faye uh, was calling to tell us. Now, this is not the book I was speaking of, but apparently is another very good book on the San Antonio River called The Crown Jewel of Texas. The author is Fisher on that one. So uh, I'm sure there there's several good books out there. But, Faye, thanks for letting us know about uh, about your favorite. Uh, back to the phone lines. Thomas is up first. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. Well, thanks for getting up. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> One thing about it, I don't have much traffic the hours I come into town. So, uh, yeah, they're... Uh, my my cat's about the only one that objects to my getting out of bed at that hour other than me, but it is my pleasure to do so. And uh, anybody gets up early enough, I'll tell you, I do enjoy that uh, the outdoor show we run here on KTSA Radio. They call Texas Outdoor News. Uh, if anybody's up early and, <laughs> and want to catch it between 4 and 5, that's what entertains me on my drive-in. But anyway, glad to be here for you, Thomas. How did you hope you had a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, a lot to be thankful for. Uh, I have a couple of things I want to talk to you about. Have you ever, are you con, uh, familiar with the uh, uh, Sumatra lily? No, I know a lot of lemons, but I don't know a specific one called the Sumatra no, a lemon, lemon. It's a lily. 
Lily. Oh, Sumatra Lily. Lily, yeah. Um, not by that name. Uh, do you have a botanical name on it? No, I'll tell you, my, we had uh, Thanksgiving at my oldest son's place, and he uh, bought these at some, I guess maybe even got them at H-E-B, I don't know, but they're, they're the most, <clears throat> the strongest, brightest purple burgundy I've ever seen. I mean, these things don't, <laughs> they're so bright. Huh. Unbelievable. I've never seen a, a lily like this before, and he made a, an arrangement, you know, for his table. And uh, I pulled it up. I don't know if, uh, you know, it's, they sell the bulbs. Right. Um, I just just did the same thing on my phone, actually, and uh, they're calling it an oriental lily. I'm sure it's related. Um, there, there are quite a number. Um, I, I think what uh, the more common name you'll find under the one you're looking at is called the stargazer lily. And... Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's that deep, deep purple. They're very waxy. They have a little bit of white uh, tones to them, a little bit of uh, spotting. I'm very familiar with that uh, lily. I just I'm I'm not known it as Sumatra lily. They uh-huh. can be grown. Unfortunately, they're like most lilies. Their flower period is relatively brief, and um, I know a number of people that grow them over in the Houston area. Here, you need to have really good soil, and you need to support them. Now, we were in, oh gosh, at a nurseryman's convention. I want to say I'm trying to get the right trip right in uh, Portland and saw them up there growing in people's gardens, and they were like five Mm -hmm. feet tall and just absolutely covered with flowers. So you can Uh grow them here. But it's just a little bit more work. But uh, if you uh, if you ask for what they call stargazer lilies, I think that's a name you'll find under them a little bit more commonly. And they're they're an amazing bulb. But uh, with our weather, you would have to give them a little protection from the wind and the you know the the storms because it would break them up. Because those things those things will get at minimum waist high. But I'm with you. They they're also very fragrant. I don't know if uh, yours were fresh yeah. enough to experience that, but they're wonderful plants. Mm-hmm. Another thing, uh, you ever you ever look at uh, YouTube? Not often, but uh, on occasion. Yeah. I, I I I look at it a lot because you can you can learn a lot of different things. <laughs> anyway, this guy is in Utah, and he uh, he has these trained minks, and you know, he has minks that are trained to kill that uh, that root out rats. Uh huh. And the part I saw, he went to this dairy dairy farm there, and they had, I mean, just hundreds of rats. They took a forklift, and they pulled up these uh, these stops where you, you know, you park your car, and there's mm-hmm. those concrete stops that pull them up. Man, I mean, rats would just run everywhere, big old wood rats. Oh, yeah, yeah. And these mink would go, <laughs> would go in the holes to get them, <laughs> and then the dogs he had would get the ones on the outside, and that's the funniest thing. I mean, that. I I can imagine, no, that they're a weasel and, um, you know, ermine mink and, and some of the weasels, they, people don't know a lot about them. They're just familiar with the fur, of course, but, uh, they are very carnivorous and, uh, we've actually seen them, um, um, up in the mountains in Wyoming and where they, they hunt and eat, uh, chipmunks and squirrels and anything else they can catch. But, uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of interesting things out there in the world. 
Well, the dogs he had them train were, <clears throat> they had five-gallon buckets. The dogs, after they killed them, they'd go and put them in the buckets for them. Wow. And they, they, at that point, they'd caught 150 rats. <laughs> nature has a <laughs> nature has a way of yeah of balancing things. But uh, anyway, well, listen, I, it's always good to okay. hear from you. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll talk again. Okay, bye. Thank Thanks, you. Thomas. Bye. All right, on to gardening with uh, Charles, and it'll be Jane and Norma. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Bob. What morning, a great sir. day to work outside, huh? <laughs> if you don't mind sweating a little bit, it's uh, you're definitely going to notice the sweat because nothing's going to evaporate off of you today, that's for sure. It's about 110% humidity, I think, but I love the warmth, that's for sure. Hey, I didn't retire down here for the snow. <laughs> exactly. Uh, on your subject about Dr. Zunker, uh, the name of the book that he wrote was A Dream Come True. Yeah, yeah. Robert Hugman and the San Antonio Riverwalk. That's it. That's oh, it. That's that you and the dirt doctor. I worked for Dr. Zunker when I was a student at Texas Lutheran. Did you really? Yeah, Vern, Vern, quite a person. Uh, we used to occasionally enjoy the uh, river parade from uh, his balcony overlooking the San Antonio River, so... Great man, and uh, Rosalie, uh, his wife, also was a wonderful person, too. Oh, yeah, they were great people. We used to call him Zorro behind his back when I was a student because <laughs> that shock of black hair he had. And lo and behold, I discovered after I graduated and left Texas Lutheran, he showed up down there one Halloween, all dressed in black, riding one of his beautiful horses. Oh, wow. He knew what his namesake was, and he embraced it, but he was a great guy and a, a sheer joy to know and that book is just it's just it's not a long book but it's uh it's very enjoyable and uh, i'm i think i still have a copy that he gave me autographed but uh yeah thank you for clarifying that uh and i remembered it was robert hugman but uh a dream come true is uh it's just a neat book for anybody interested in the history of the Riverwalk, and such a terrible thing that they almost did put it in a giant underground ditch and look what we have instead oh i couldn't couldn't agree more. I was teaching school here in 67, 68 when Hemisphere came around. Right. I, I agree with your earlier speaker about what they did with the Riverwalk. The City Fathers really came through yeah. and turned into a really beautiful area. Oh, very good. Well, anything I can uh, help you with this morning? Oh, just wanted to share that with you and, and the Dirt Doctor and tell you how much I enjoy your show and his wisdom and yours. Thank you for sharing it with us. Well, it's a great pleasure, and thank you for thank you for the call this morning. We wish you and yours just the very best of the holiday season, Charles. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Let's just keep going right here and talk to Jane. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Bob. And I, in this season of giving thanks, I'm giving thanks for the way you teach us. When you explain <laughs> how something has to be done and you give the reasons, that makes a huge difference. Well, I appreciate that. I, I can't help it. You know, I I went to graduate school on a teaching fellowship and found out that I love to teach. But the uh, uh, nice thing about doing it on the radio is it's not quite politi- as political as a university. So, uh it's uh, it's fun to be here, and I get to talk to a lot of wonderful people, uh, including you. So I, I thank you. Well, all right. This is what I'm calling about. You know those pesky grasshoppers always get ahead of us. Right. So what's the best time to do whatever we got to do to keep them little varmints from taking over? Well, you need to watch for when they first appear in the spring to early summer, and that may vary a little bit. 
uh, depending on the year, depending on the moisture. But there is a natural bacteria that uh, it doesn't kill them outright, but it sickens them. And they stop eating our plants, and then when the bigger grasshoppers start eating the small grasshoppers, grasshoppers are very cannibalistic, they get this bacteria and, you know, stop feeding. And the name of the product, it goes by two or three different names, but the organism is uh, Nosema locustri. You don't have to remember that. But uh, one of the baits is called Nolo, N-O-L-O. And the other is called semaspore, S-E-M-A-S-P-O-R-E. But uh, both of them are totally natural, don't hurt birds, don't hurt anything else in the environment, but uh, will control the grasshoppers. Uh, The one-pound, I want to say the one-pound container of it does close to an acre. You don't have to put out very much of it. But uh, sometime over the winter months, see if you can find either Nolo or semaspore, Keep it in the refrigerator. In fact, I think they even recommend keeping it in the freezer. And then when you first start seeing little grasshoppers appear in the spring or early summer, get out and just sprinkle your NOLO around, and uh, you should be, like I say, the little grasshoppers aren't going to fall over dead, but they pick up the bacteria, they stop feeding, so they stop doing any damage, and then the um, the infection so to speak spreads to the whole grasshopper population as the big ones eat the younger infected grasshoppers and uh, it's just a great natural control the grasshoppers can't pick up can't make any resistance to it so as long as we have somebody producing uh, the nolo we'll have a very good control for grasshoppers there was a year or so that they stopped producing it and we uh, we all suffer but it is back on the market now and uh should be should be plenty of it available well before spring. Okay, and how long will I keep it in my refrigerator? Can I keep it for several months? Uh, yes, you can. I think they recommend using it within six months, but it's kind of like many other products. It'll last much longer, but the um, the efficiency of it drops over the extended period of time. But I would think certainly six months is not not an unreasonable time to keep it at all. All right, and I'm hoping there'll be a whole lot less than a pound available somewhere because I don't have near, nowhere near an acre. Will I need to keep applying this? You'll need, you know, usually one or two applications is plenty. But uh, probably you'll get together with a friend because I've never seen it in smaller containers. It's not unreasonably priced, but uh, find two or three friends that dislike grasshoppers as much as you are and just uh, get uh, get the pound of it and split it up among you. Okay, and it'll have the directions for when you want to. You don't want to get it rained on or you do want to get it rained on? doesn't really matter a whole lot. It's just important to get it out when you first start seeing the young grasshoppers. All right, because those little rascals <laughs> took me over. Yeah. So I'm going to be on top of it for this coming year. Well, you know what to do now, and I appreciate the call, Jane. Thank you. Mm-hmm, bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye. So good morning, Norma. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have been killing lots of pecans. Yes. And I wondered if I could put those shells in my garden. Absolutely absolutely you can put them in the garden or you can put them as a mulch on the surface that's probably the best thing to do and if you have problems with neighborhood cats and dogs and things like that getting into your soil they hate to walk on pecan shells so i think it's one of the best mulches you can come up with 
Mm-hmm. And I have a fig tree that's not doing too good. I could put it around the fig tree, too. Yes, you certainly can. Um, fig trees, yeah, gosh, most of the problems I'm seeing with figs right now is just not enough moisture. So be sure fertilize your fig this fall and be sure and water deeply every couple of weeks if we don't get a good rain. We haven't really had a good rain in, oh, two or three months now. So uh, figs probably suffering a little bit from staying too dry, but a little pecan mulch around them would be just fine. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. Well, you are certainly welcome. Thanks for the call this morning. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right. Uh, next up will be Casey. Good morning, Casey. Hi, Casey. Let's try this back to hold and then back to that. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Casey. Hello. Sorry I bumped the mute button. <laughs> That's all right. How can I help today? <laughs> Well, I just had a comment. I was listening earlier, and you had a caller call in because his uh, pepper plants were fully loaded again, and he didn't know what to do with the peppers. Uh And I came across, watching TV one day, something called a pepper pesto. Oh, really? And so you you roast your peppers. Uh You can do all kinds of different mixes, but you roast your peppers, and then you let them cool, you throw them in the food processor with a little bit of salt and some olive oil or avocado oil. Uh-huh. And you create this nice, um, almost like a pasty relish. And you can keep it in the freezer, and it's, I mean, in the refrigerator. And it stays for a long time. And you can just take a spoon and drop it into this or that, whatever you need to have that flavor with or what you want that flavor with. And it's absolutely wonderful. And it's super fast when you know, you're cooking. This is what makes doing oh, the show so so much fun is that I never know what direction we're going with different things. And we've had <laughs> two or three really good suggestions about different things. Now, the the original caller was talking about the little uh, and, and chili patine, chili patine. I've always been told it has to do with the size of the pepper, which name you apply to it. But you're talking about peppers in general and not just the chili patines alone. Just in general. And we take uh, my husband and son like things a lot spicier than I do. So they can <laughs> take and add a little bit more to theirs that, uh-huh. you know, that they would like. But, I mean, we'll take um, the original recipe that I used. I used... Um, poblanos, serranos, um, jalapenos, just any kind of pepper that I could find. Mm-hmm. And I mixed them all together and put them in the food processor. And that little bit of uh, char from the roasting just really um, set it off. And I think I even threw like some roasted garlic in it the first time oh, wow. I did it. It was Really good. You know how to make a person drool over the microphone here in the <laughs> studio, and and then you just add uh, olive oil as an emulsifier without any other flavorings, just the peppers alone. Without any other flavorings, just that's just something you know to keep it preserved, kind of like how the Italians use uh, sure. the olive oil with the basil for oh, yeah. pesto. So, um, but we we had it in macaroni and cheese, and it makes <laughs> the most wonderful mac and cheese. Well. <laughs> You are so kind to share with us, and uh, uh, I can see a lot of people out there thinking, hmm, now I know what to do with uh, with all those late, late season. And it doesn't make any difference whether the peppers are green or red. You know, when cool weather hits, a lot of them, you develop a lot more color, and they lose some of the uh, 
of that crispness, but where you're actually putting them into a food processor after you roast them, that wouldn't make any difference at all. You could, as long as they're, you know, have them shriveled, you could use them at almost any degree of ripeness. Absolutely. And that way you don't have to worry about, you know, getting a mushy pepper, you know, from mm-hmm. freezing it. So, but no, we, we keep little, uh, little, uh, pint-sized jars of pepper pesto, different flavors, different heats, and different things of sort. <laughs> it's, Hanging out on the top shelf of the fridge just yeah. for that extra little punch of flavor. Sometimes. Well, you're, you're helping a lot of people. Maybe we'll have to develop devote more of a show sometime to people's different ideas for things to spice up the holiday season. But thank you for taking time to share this morning, Casey. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, you're welcome. Usually I have a list of questions for you, and by the time I get in, you've already answered most of them. So I was like, I have information that might be helpful to someone. Well, you're most kind, and I'm always here to help you any way we can. You get out and enjoy the holiday season. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Casey. Bye. All right. uh, Yeah, we'll probably finish the show up with Cindy. Good morning, Cindy. Hi, Levy. Yes, I have some trees that um, I cut down around my fence line. So I forget the name of them, but they're the ones that the birds deliver to this line. Probably hackberries. And, um, yeah, that's them. And I paid someone to cut down these trees, and it was the coldest day of the year a few years ago. And then now they've grown back, and I cut some back, and I said, you know what? I forgot about. Don't didn't you did Bob didn't Bob say something about getting that paint to put on the trees? So they won't go back. And I know it's the wrong time of year, but I want to get them dead. And uh, do I get the paint to stop them from coming back? Well, paint doesn't work very well against hackberries. It, uh, they, they are one of the hardest trees to totally get rid of once they really get established. And I don't uh-huh. know of anything you could paint on to stop them. Uh, you can, you can get rid of them by girdling in them and let them, you know, die naturally over the period of few months. Or, um, you know, bigger ones, if you, I, I don't like to use it because it's not organic, but if they're in a place where you don't have other plants around that could be harmed, you can always just put a little bit of diesel on them and that will kill them. I always follow that up with some molasses oh. to stimulate the bacteria that will get rid of that. But, uh, okay, Diesel, and I said to someone the other day, I remember you said diesel. So when you said diesel, do you mean diesel oil, and where do you get it? Just diesel, same diesel gas. same gas you run your big pickup truck on. Oh, so it's diesel gas like from, from the truck stop? Right. Oh, great. And and that's for, so I I put it on after I get it down as low as I can, right? Because I've already done this once, and roots went all through the yard, the yeah. backyard. Yeah, get like, it. Like runners. Cut it down as low as you can. Don't overdo it. And like I say, it will kill grass. It'll kill everything else right around the area. And But it's important after you've done this to follow up with a little bit of a cup or two of molasses a few weeks later because that stimulates the microbes. It will kill up all the nasty stuff that may be in the diesel. Okay. And then what? Now, the, the molasses, um, two cups are just pure Black, is it black or dark molasses? Any kind of molasses at all. It's just the sugar that is a very strong microbial stimulant that will clean up that soil. Okay, now what about the orange oil for the, um, you mentioned that, and I was going to uh, check out your the favorite nursery you talk about over here off of Whole Green, Whole Green Road. Yeah, that's Fanix Nursery. Uh, orange oil is useful for many things. If you want to make a weed killer out of it, You can combine it with vinegar, two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of vinegar, and that will work 
just like the toxic weed killers to just kill everything you spray it on in the way of grasses and green weeds and things like that. Orange oil can be used mixed with water. It can be used as a fire ant poison. You can actually paint it onto um, or spray it onto the bark of trees that may have borers underneath. Uh, in this case, you use several ounces to a gallon of water and spray it directly on there. And if you have a problem with those uh, powder beetles that get into firewood and things like that, you can also yeah. spray some orange oil on the logs, and that will take care of uh, the beetles that make all that sawdust. Uh, so there are lots yeah. of different things to do with orange oil. It's a very good product. You can dilute it down a great deal and spray it around to get rid of mosquitoes. And uh, um, orange oil, is it just is called the limonene. It's uh, squeezed out of the peels of citrus, and it is very useful. And I imagine you'll find uh, you'll find it under the Medina brand over there at Fanix. And yeah, that's the I, brand saw, I saw that on Amazon also they said Medina, and it was orange oil, yeah. fresh pressed. Right. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Do you have those recipes on a blog or something? Um, We actually have them written out at our nursery, which is Shades of Green, and I think we have them on our website. I'm not 100% sure. We're still working on that. But it's uh, Shades of Green SA, is in San Antonio, shadesofgreensa.com. And uh, if you ever buy, uh, buy our nursery over on Sunset Road, we have them all written out and happily give you a copy of it. Okay, great, honey. You have a great holiday. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cindy. You did the same. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.